Hello and welcome back to Metastation for the continuation of our season one recaps. Today we are diving into Day Trip, which we're very excited about. I'm Claire. <laughs> I am a writer in Portland, Oregon, who's had a really strange week. <laughs> <laughs> Claire is a Twitter star now, you guys. I, I got accidentally internet famous. We'll talk about that in a second, but... <laughs> been crazy (laughs) (laughs) i'm erin i'm an english professor in mississippi i am not twitter famous at all and after claire's experience (laughs) i don't ever want to be because it sounds freaking insane oh my god it's been crazy (laughs) i actually also had god how do we even get on this this morning and or this afternoon in class for some reason, like we started talking about TV shows. Oh, like one of my students asked me why, asked me if I watched Supernatural, and I was like, no. Mm-hmm. And he was always talking about shows that have been going on too long. We talked about, and then he brought up The Hundred out of nowhere. Oh. And uh, and we like chatted about it for a minute. Like a couple other my other students had watched it. One of them stopped watching it in season three, and he's like, I'm partway through season four, and it was really so. It was like it was so funny. I was just like, oh, huh. And I. <laughs> And I, we, like, got into, like, I think we could, like, the discussion went along, and I, I think it was clear that I was not a casual viewer, and so I was like, I should probably just, like, come back and tell you guys that I have a podcast about this show. And they were like, what? Oh, my God, I love it. <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I'm amazed that I had, that they had, I had students who were super into the show. It was great. I mean, they're really, they're probably, like, college students are right in the age demographic. Oh, yeah, for Like, sure. I, I bet a ton of your students probably watch the show i'm sure yeah yeah i'm sure they do that's amazing i love it gonna out myself too much anyway yes (laughs) (laughs) all right so back to uh day trip day trip day trip so basically what i think we're gonna do is there's there's a couple of we sort of check in on a couple of storylines smaller storylines and do a lot of what's largely table setting for bigger things that are about to happen and we'll kind of crank through those pretty quickly so that we sort of hit those points but of course the big thing that we really want to talk about is the Bellamy and Clark bunker and tree scenes all the hallucinations all the sort of big thematic guilt and forgiveness stuff so that's probably where we're going to spend most of our time but let's start just really quickly um, and we can, we'll kind of ping back to this when we get into some of the Bellamy stuff, but just to sort of check in on what's been going on in this episode on the arc, it's, we're not up on the arc very much. There's no Abby in this episode. There's very, very little Kane and a little bit of Jaha or a little bit of actual Jaha. There's quite a bit of hallucinated right, yeah, Jaha. Yeah. <laughs> Joby Jaha. Joby but, Jaha. Um, <laughs> But essentially, in terms of the plot, largely what happens in this episode with the arc storyline is moving the pieces into place to kind of reveal the the twist in Diana Sidney's big long con, that mm-hmm. she is the person who put Shumway up to putting Bellamy up to shooting Jaha. So, so this is when we're sort of, when it's revealed to us that she was actually the person that was behind the attempted assassination before she knew about Project Exodus, before she was back on the council, that her goal in was to, for reasons of her own, to kill the chancellor and presumably then re-recommend herself to take over his job. And I remember the first time I watched this, I remember that reveal at the end, at the very, very end last scene where Shumway has been ratted out by Bellamy in exchange for a pardon from Jaha. 
So Kane comes to arrest him, throw him in the brig, and then Diana and her guard come in and basically like kill him and stage his death as a as a suicide. And it kicks off, which we'll get into more in the next episode, but a kind of great little, you know, it's it's the next twist in the sort of ongoing murder mystery thread of this plot that I remember the first time I watched it, I really, really liked the sort of who shot Jaha or who who put Bellamy up to shooting Jaha you know, Mm -hmm. kind of plot. And so this is where we really get that resolution. And I remember the first time I watched it being like genuinely shocked and yet also then somehow not shocked that it was Diana. Mm -hmm. Like that was a great, well-executed little twist, I thought. It was like a perfect twist because like the greatest twists are the ones where you're like, of course, you know, it was like a moment of shock and then everything kind of quickly falls into place and it all, and and then suddenly like just totally makes sense. And I had the same reaction where I was like, yeah, like stunned and then sort of like, oh, oh yes, of course, of course, you know. And and uh, God, I, I feel bad I forget the name of the actress who plays Diana Sidney, but like she's just like so awesome too in her sort of... Uh, Kate Vernon. Yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah. she's like chilling, you know, in that kind of like... Yes. Cold-blooded... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> schemer kind of way. And you know, it's funny because like I actually wind up feeling bad for Shumway, even though Shumway is just like yes. total stunned, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Like even though he put... Dax up to killing Bellamy for him. Like, in that moment when he gets up and he's, like, so relieved, at, like, yeah. like, you actually feel bad for him for a second. Yeah, he's absolutely, he's he's one of the most loathsome characters on the show up until that very last scene where, just for a second, where, where you, I think where you realize the comparative smallness and insignificance of him. Yeah. Because he realizes it, too. Yeah. You know, like, when he realizes... He was only a pawn. He thought he was kind of a, a significant player calling the shots. He assumed he was part of Diana's endgame. He did this huge thing for her, yeah. clearly expecting some kind of reciprocity. And so watching the moment where he realizes that it's all over, yeah, you know, is just really, it, it gives her character so much more weight in her evilness. You know, she has yeah. kind of like a vaguely shady air previous to this and now it's like oh no she is stone cold yeah like she is fucking made of steel yeah she has no conscience and so that makes her automatically a million times more interesting and terrifying because you're like okay so now so now what the fuck is she gonna do right and the way that she just like uses people as tools and then disposes of them without yeah a shade of remorse you know and you think about like Shumway did terrible things for her you know and then this is and and he was just a tool to kind of like distance her from from the the dirty work and exactly. it also like sort of retroactively makes her performances of of like sympathy and empathy and it makes it so much more chilling when you think back at how good she is at imitating mm-hmm. a person who really cares about other people as people, you know, who really can, like, feel what they feel. But, like, clearly she doesn't, you know? She's just, like, an evil psychopath who does a a convincing imitation of a person who has feelings about other people. Yeah. The (laughs) the gap between that that scene after the culling and that scene with with Shumway in terms of how she presents herself as a person who cares about human life. Yeah. You're just like, wow, you are a very good actress. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, it's amazing. So that's a great little twist, but it does, yeah. it's just like at the very, very end. And that's mostly for next week. Yeah. Yeah. It's largely to sort of set us up for, and I think the, 
the thing, you know, if you haven't seen the show before and you don't know what's about to happen, one of the really sort of harrowing, actually the two sort of really harrowing things in that last scene leading into the sort of like, (gasps) what's going to happen next are, first of all, that because they so effectively staged Shumway's death as a suicide, there remains at this point in the storyline a very real question about whether Diana is going to get away with everything that she's done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is anyone ever going to find out that it wasn't purely Shumway working on his own who was behind this? Because Bellamy doesn't know anything about Diana. He only knows Shumway. Right. So that piece of it, the sort of question of, like, is she... Is anyone ever going to figure out that she's the person who is behind this? Or has she actually wrapped this all up, you know, with a nice little bow where she gets away scot-free? And then the other piece of it is that we still have absolutely no idea by this point in the storyline what the next step in her endgame is. Yeah. What she's trying to do. Is she going to try to kill Jaha again? What is, this is all clearly steps moving towards something. We don't know what that something is going to be. We get be. a little hint in that opening scene when she's she's pushing so hard for the Exodus project. You know, yeah. So she's sort of, yeah. she's objecting to spending time helping the kids get themselves ready to deal with the winter on the ground. And she's like, okay, but, like, Exodus Project is in motion. You know, we have to focus our resources on that. We have to focus on that. So it's like a little bit of a hint that that's the thing that she's kind of honed in on now. But, yeah, otherwise it's not really clear mm. exactly what she's going to do about that, like, what, what her plan is with regard to that or anything else. And so, yeah. Yeah. And sort of watching Jaha and Kane's reaction to that is sort of our first little hint of one of my favorite threads that kind of develops in the next episode is everyone's, the the other adults kind of growing suspicion of the way that she's acting. You know, like like everyone kind of side-eyeing each other every time Diana opens her mouth, but not really with anything to go on. Just like, uh, hey, winter is coming. The kids are going to die of exposure. That should be a priority. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fine. And it's like they're all. It's like there's there's something like where I wanna I wanna see in that some recognition on Jaha's part that it's like this is not. It's a weird reaction to care so little. Just be like, have them just sit tight in their tents and hope that they <laughs> don't die. Although you know, it's I I will say. <laughs> It is kind of funny how how this episode frames the problem of winter and cold temperatures coming as being such this, like, enormous imminent threat. Like, any day it's going to be so cold we're going to die of hypothermia if we don't deal with this right now. And then it just kind of never materializes. Like, they're like, oh my god, yeah. winter, oh my god, winter, oh my god, winter. And then, like, basically they never mention the problem of winter again after this episode. Yeah, you know, so sort of we didn't see off. snow until, like, season four. <laughs> Well, season three, I think there was a little bit of snow. Oh, season three, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no, I don't yeah. think. No, I don't think so. No, I mean, end of like season two, it looks kind of cold, but it's very much an open question why <laughs> why they were like so urgently worried about winter in yeah. this episode. I mean, like it was it was a plot thing that had to happen in this episode in order to get Bellamy and Clark off on their day trip to the bunker to find supplies but it, it's it is sort of like weird going back to this episode knowing what's gonna happen later to be like wow you were really really worried about winter arriving tomorrow and then just like immediately forgot yeah. about it apparently 
No, I know. Yeah, like like well, like all of my all of my visuals of season two. You know, everybody on the outside, like Clark and Abby and Raven and the radio and stuff. Like in my head, I'm just like that all looked like springtime. Yeah, yeah. Like all of that stuff. Yeah, but anyway, but <laughs> that's just one of those like little continuity things where it's just kind of like yeah, where you're just like mm, yeah. Well, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they had, they, they, I guess they wound up having other things to worry about and nobody froze. So all's well that ends well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other interesting things about the arc storyline in this episode that I, that I liked is this was very much one of the, one of the episodes where the first time I watched it that I found myself finding Jaha much more sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is, this is a good this is a good Jaha episode. You know, everything mm-hmm. that he does make like it it makes sense why he needs to be bargained into offering Bellamy a pardon, obviously, mm-hmm. instead of just being like, You're forgiven. But, you know, when he grants it, it's genuine, you know, and he and he doesn't appear, you know, when he finally does come down and meet Bellamy later. You know, like it's not like this becomes ongoing baggage between I mean, like, one thing I will say about Jaha, and I think, like, this does make sense for his character as we know him. One one sort of function, I think, of Jaha being a leader who focuses so, so much on the big picture and so little on the personal side of it. That sort of, like, that his ability to compartmentalize that has on occasion gone to this, like, insane extreme. You know, one thing that about it that does... That is really, you know, good and makes him a really good leader is that he is capable of sort of in that moment recognizing, like setting aside his own whatever feelings he might have of, you know, anger at being shot, of Mm -hmm. need for revenge or whatever. He's able when he's presented with a situation where the greater good would be served by him pardoning Bellamy, he can just do it. Yes. And, and he is capable of just letting it go after that. Like, he made, he thought yeah. about it, he made his decision that letting it go was the best thing to do. And he is genuinely able, like, when he decides to let it go, he can let it go. When he decides, you know, his personal, whatever his personal feelings about it are, are less important than sort of bigger picture, he's able to really just, like, compartmentalize and put away those personal feelings. So that that is something that feels, like, very you know, it feels very Jaha. Like, that is that is something that Jaha can do. Yeah. And that's, like, a moment when you can see how he would be a really good chancellor in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the kind of thing where it's, like, if you present Jaha with a convincing argument, mm-hmm. then he'll just go with it, you know? And he doesn't yeah. sort of, like, hang on to petty grudges or anything like that. It's not... These things are not personal for him. And, like, there's a way in which his extreme, almost inability to grant importance to the personal can be a weakness and it sort of gets metastasized into something more sinister when he takes the chip and joins Allie in season three you know because because then his sort of personal connections to individuals are just completely gone but it does mean that he can be dispassionate in situations where a yeah. lot of people would you know would not be capable of being like rational and dispassionate in that way yeah, like Abby would never. Exactly. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> like, like Clark. Yeah. Like Clark can't let go uh-huh. of the decision that her mom made, you know, because yeah. her mom genuinely believed that it was the best thing to do for the most people. But it ended, you know, it resulted in Jake's death. Like Clark could never let go of the personal the personal hurt that she felt, 
either towards Wells when she thought Wells was responsible or towards her mother. You know, but, like, Jaha mm. in that situation, you could see him. Like, Jaha w- is able to compartmentalize that stuff, you know, to, like, kind of a freaky degree. Yeah. But, like, it, is, right, it right. is not being able to do that is is definitely a limitation. You know, it's like it can become a sort of its own problem. Yeah, and it and it does, I think it it fosters the, you know, season one Jaha is the Jaha that I like the best. Yeah. The, you know, who has the most humanity kind of intermingled with that sort of shut down your emotions and get to work kind of side of it. And I think in the first half of season one, we see, and we talked about this last year when we were recapping the earlier episodes, you know, we see a lot of Jaha in the position of kind of neutral arbiter with Abby on one side arguing her case, Kane on the other side arguing his case, Jaha in the middle trying to decide. And so he's framed as the person who is always looking for the most rational, logical argument. Mm -hmm. And it makes perfect sense both for who he is as a character and for what's the smartest decision for the Chancellor to make in that moment that pardoning Bellamy in order to get whoever ordered Bellamy to do what he did, because Bellamy obviously is not the top of the food chain here. Mm -hmm. You know, Bellamy Mm -hmm. is a pawn and Jaha smart enough to know that. So the calculation that putting this behind him in order to go for the bigger fish is the smart play in this sort of like balanced level-headed you know the best version of Jaha who sort of like assesses the landscape and says like this is the thing that I've determined is the most practical thing to do Mm -hmm. and I like that but I also like that we get we do get a little moment of heartfelt human Jaha who's known Clark since she was a child like the slightly warmer side of him in that first Jaha scene where he asks for a moment alone and dismisses the council so that he can sort of make one last attempt to persuade Clark to talk to her mom again mm-hmm. yep so there really is a, I mean this is a he's he's <laughs> he's very likable in this episode it's easy to root for Jaha yeah yeah which is which is nice. Like it's it's nice to like him. He gets so much crazier <laughs> later, but but he's kind of like a peacemaker here. You know, he's he's trying yeah. to just like find the way to sort of resolve things, resolve as much conflict as he can in the, yeah. the best way possible. And yeah, you know, it's it's nice. Yeah, it's nice to have a Jaha you can count on. <laughs> it is, and and it's interesting too. And we can talk about this more at the at the end. But I feel like it is interesting to contrast. The version of Jaha that we actually see in this episode, who is so kind of level-headed and pragmatic, with Bellamy's mental construction of Jaha, and the places where it's sort of the same and different, and where are the places where the Jaha that we see reflects how Bellamy thinks, that the kind of person Bellamy thinks that Jaha is, and how much of it is Bellamy giving messages to himself in a way where I think there's a real narrative consistency to Jake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clark's Jake and our Jake are transparently and consistently the same person. Mm -hmm. You know, like, he is saying the things that we absolutely believe in our hearts that the real Jake Griffin would absolutely say. And the Jaha picture's a little bit messier. I mean, obviously, because Bellamy doesn't have the same intimate knowledge of Jaha that Clark had of her father. But it is interesting. You know, I think that the comparison between like IRL Jaha being really root forable <laughs> in this episode, <laughs> in contrast to how really profoundly terrifying he is in that sort of hallucination scene. So that's an interesting thing we can kind of come back to too. 
they're like diametrically opposite because because Bellamy keeps saying, well, he says to Clark, I shot the man. He's not going to forgive and forget, you know, and he does. Mm -hmm. The thing that Bellamy is convinced that he will never, ever do, he actually does. So Joby Jaha is like this sort of vengeance demon that Bellamy has sort of imagined must be coming for him based on all the guilt he feels for the decisions that he's made. And real Jaha is the one who comes along and says, you know, I got bigger fish to fry. Yeah. You've done good and I and I get to, you know, get the boss rather than the than the pawn. And so, all right, here we go. Exactly. So on the ground, they are getting high on Joby Nuts, which is <laughs> <laughs> one of the like few moments of levity that we get on this show, but it is delightful. <laughs> yeah. This is I think so many of my favorite comedic moments in the whole show are in this episode yeah like it's just uh so many good lines most beautiful broom in a closet full of brooms yes and i can't change the tides if the moon will cooperate <laughs> with basic physics <laughs> all right tripping monty is the best like he is oh he is God. definitely the best high person although you know yeah. what like i was thinking about this too when i was watching because now, of course, after season four, every, every little bit oh, of Jasper God. and Jasper and Monty content is just, like, freaking heartbreaking. But one thing that I thought was really, really interesting, if we're talking about, well, I mean, we'll t- return to this later, obviously, with Bellamy and Clark, but if we're thinking about the Joby Not hallucinations being sort of, like, a window into what is most, what most preoccupies the characters, you know, the kind of, like, things mm-hmm. that, that are most important to them or that, or they're, like, unresolved stuff. You know, for Jasper, it is really interesting that it's all wrapped up in his fear of grounders and his fear of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, he's hallucinating these grounders. He's terrified that, you know, he's going to be attacked. When he's talking to to Monty, you know, he expresses this sort of, like, earth is scary and, and is a scary place to him. And I just, like, it, it made me think about, it, it was one of those moments where I was like, it made me think about how consistent this Jasper is with the Jasper of season three and season four Mm -hmm. that interestingly it winds up that the season two detour into sort of Mount Weather leader of the kids and an action hero Jasper that was really the deviation you know like for Jasper Mm -hmm. his story has predominantly been about sort of set by the kind of like trauma and fear and pain that he experienced when he arrived on the ground that he just like never quite got away from and I my heart just breaks over and over and over again for Jasper it's just like so I see totally where the writers piece together the Jasper that we got in season four and I just Mm -hmm. like I just sort of mourn for a different Jasper who might have been well and and even, I would argue, even season two, Jasper, I I wonder if the fact that initially, you know, in the beginning of season two, before he realizes that Clark was right and he realizes, you know, what a terrible place Mount Mother actually is, I think, you know, the reason that he reacts with such defensiveness to the notion that Clark is you know, might be right that this place is, there's something shady going on here, I think is 
is part and parcel of that, you know, like a sort of a natural outgrowth of that season one, Jasper, where yeah. it's like, he's safe for the first time. He's yeah. indoors. Yeah. He has cake. Yeah. He has friends. He has clean clothes, yeah. you know. And so so I, I could buy, and I and I haven't rewatched it in a long time, so I don't know how much of this is headcanon and how much of this is sort of textual, but, but the idea that he becomes who he becomes in terms of being the fighter and the leader because part of what he's fighting for so ferociously is you know like he they're not planning on they don't know that irradiating everybody in Matt Weather is going to be the solution right I think he no. wants to sort of take out the bad guys yeah. in Matt Weather but I think what he's fighting for is the hope that this could still be a safe home for them yeah if they could you know can they drive out the shitty people can they stop this horrible grounder thing can Bellany come and save them but is there some semblance of a home that could be protected with the good people who live there you know Maya mm -hmm. and Maya's father and their friends and the people who helped and protected them right if they could like stage a coup and take down the Wallaces and you know shut down right right, right. yeah and then yeah. like everyone you know and then move their people in you know so so I wonder if part of the ferocity with which he takes on this leadership role is because he is so scared to go back outside into the world of like constant war and violence and death and conflict and horror. And in here, this is the first time he's felt safe. I mean, maybe ever. We don't know a lot about what his life was like on the Ark. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think you're right Like that, that there is an important sort of consistency in how, how quickly he becomes attached to Mount Weather, how quickly he's like, okay, awesome, great our new home I see nothing wrong with this place everything here is exactly yeah yeah everything here is what I want it to be which is safety yeah. security comfort not constantly feeling afraid yeah and and yeah. and the fact that it happens underground and not on the surface I mean I think you know mm -hmm. he has these really strong sort of associations between being on the surface and being on earth and being mm -hmm. in danger that just kind of never went away and and you can see like you know so as soon as he like eats those nuts like this is where his brain goes like this is just yeah. kind of what that's what's just under the surface yeah which is yeah and and Monty I don't know what his <laughs> I don't know what his hallucinations mean other than other than he's like a secretly a mad scientist in in the making yeah. <laughs> he's trying to control the tides yeah <laughs> something something yeah it is I, I, it is interesting like looking back at Looking back at season one through the context of now knowing for so many of these characters how their arcs ended or where their arcs, where they are at the close of season four, I do think that it is interesting that that it's Jasper specifically and not Jasper and Monty whose kind of nightmare we're let into. You know, yeah. like that Monty, Monty's role in this storyline is just like pure comedy. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is delightful, and <laughs> and so many of the rest of them are. And shout outs to Raven and Octavia for being, and even Finn for being like really solid sober friends. Yes, you know? <laughs> like, the people that you want with you when you are tripping balls and imagining all kinds of crazy stuff right. are Raven and Octavia. <laughs> but I but I do think yeah, like knowing, you know, it's hard to know how far in advance anything related to sort of PTSD and trauma and depression leading to suicide were kind of sketched out as part of where Jasper's arc was going. But I do feel like even this early on, I think there's an element of darkness just below the surface to 
what makes Jasper funny and endearing that Monty doesn't quite get until the stuff in season three with his mom. You yeah. know, I think it's it's the introduction of Hannah that puts some sort of darker shades and tones into Monty's characterization and his storyline in a way that even in Mount Weather, I think he sort of maintains his kind of pluck, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And a and a sense of of that lightness and that humor and that just like loyalty and and you know all the things that make Monty Monty and and I think that you're right that like for Jasper that that sort of sense of barely contained terror kind of at all times you know like that he's always been framed as the more vulnerable one that Monty to some degree kind of takes care of. Mm-hmm. Monty being the one to show up to help him when he's on the bridge, you know, things like that. Like those yeah, moments yeah. where like Monty's the steadying force and Jasper's the one that's really easily shaken up. And so I think that, you know, I mean, it's obviously it's impossible to know where at this point in the storyline anyone envisioned Jasper's arc long term was going. But right. I do think that they have like that that trail of breadcrumbs is there, I think, on on rewatch and some really um some really interesting and surprising ways, which I like. There was lots of little things where, you know, like very early on where you're like, oh, we're halfway through season one and already lots of relationships or patterns or moments that become much bigger deals later are already kind of, the seeds are being planted for that, which mm-hmm. I like. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, who else is on the ground? Oh, Linktavia? Yeah, Linktavia. Linktavia. So... <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> I, they, they have their thing. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about them right now. So, <laughs> so, pl- so plot-wise, I guess basically where we're at with the, the, the movement of the Linktavia storyline is that she very craftily Joby drugs Miller, right. who, who gets, I think, his, his first real big kind of moment in this woman, Lincoln headbutts him, which is very satisfying. Well, and also, actually, let's take a moment for some Miller appreciation in this episode, because he mm-hmm. also, at the beginning of the episode, we find out he is talking to the parents of the kids who have died for Bellamy, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, like, one of those, like, really huge things. Like, I don't know, it's, like, easy to overlook because it's kind of just an aside in, in the exposition, but I just think it's, like, you know... Miller's doing a huge, huge job, like a really painful thing for yeah. Bellamy. And, and I just think it's kind of like interesting that Miller's the one who's stepping up, you know, already. And then he gets headbutted. <laughs> and, it, and it fits how we, it fits what we know of who he becomes in the later seasons in some ways more than it fits what we've seen so far. Yeah. Which I like. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like already it gives us a little bit of of a hint that there's more to Miller than just sort of being Bellamy's heavy, right, you know, yeah, being yeah. like the second in command whose job is just to punch people. Um, and, you know, and, and in the, um, and the sort of hearkening back to that when Bellamy's with Clark and the, you know, the sort of tip off that he's planning to bolt other than the fact that he shoved, you know, a week's worth of food into his backpack <laughs> is when he tells Clark, basically like implying like when I'm not here, you know, that sort of recommending Miller as a person who she should keep close. People listen to him, you know, like Miller to be her second. Um, and that's interesting too. You know, he didn't establish his position as Bellamy's right hand man just by being like tough. Bellamy says people listen to him, you know, he's persuasive, yeah. he's competent, yeah. you know, yeah. and, 
And so all of that, it's like it, it feels really internally consistent with the much more, much richer and more fleshed out characterization of Miller that we begin to get, you know, in season three and season four, when we meet Brian, when we get the Ice Nation stuff, sort of the evolution of his character. So yeah, but I, I think I think a lot of the stuff, the first time I watched it, I sort of breezed right by because so much of that is exposited about him yeah. and the things that we see him do on screen feel at this stage a bit more one note but it does sort of again the sort of trail of breadcrumbs exactly. things to go on be fleshed out later yeah which you, you can know. kind of come back to and see how they're you know significant and setting up later development even if you miss it the first time which is always always kind of nice yes. but he he's very angry at lincoln and gets headbutted <laughs> yes <laughs> But yeah, so so plot wise, the Lincoln Octavia stuff. So she's obviously she's been kept away from being able to see Lincoln for a while because of Bellamy. She can't really sneak up there until Bellamy's gone, and then she, you know, tends to his wounds a little bit. It's all very sweet, <laughs> and then she drugs Miller with uh, Joby nuts by pretending to be like, you're right, I'm so sorry. I'll never disobey again. I brought you food. And the fact that he's not immediately like, what did you do to this food? Well, I think that's just one of those, I think that's, that's just kind of like, the flaw of the arc is that none of these kids ever had siblings, so they're just, like, not wise. Yeah, There's so much, that's true. so many things that they'll fall for that, like, if Miller had a little yeah. brother, he would never <laughs> fall for. He'd be like, what did you put in this? Yeah, Wait he's just like, oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so, I mean, I, and I, I always find it, the conversation they have um, when she's tending his wounds... That, that kind of like first time when she's up there really interesting in the way that he presumes that they're going to kill him. You know, like his sort of mm-hmm. experience yeah. says, like he tells her this only ends one way. Mm-hmm. And then he tells her that, you know, she says, you're not the enemy. And he says, I am. You know, I think it's really interesting knowing that for, for Lincoln to say that, knowing, well, I don't know, like his backstory is a little bit hazy now. You know, like he's not, mm-hmm. he's not really affiliated with anyone, but still like Lincoln kind of understands that the way that these things work is that he has been marked as the enemy and therefore he is. You know, there's a certain kind of, like, self-fulfilling-ness of the sort of, like, inexorable logic of, like, there must be an enemy and you're it. You know, it doesn't really matter if he started out that way or not, but now he is. Yeah, like, this is this is the sort of the grounder culture and the grander mm-hmm. sort of mentality yeah that kind of tribalism you know the way the clans are so divided you yeah. know this is very of a piece with what we learn later of kind of how their sort of social and political infrastructure right works. that's true and so he's just like you know like look i'm he's like this is the world exactly yeah and and i and i think that to octavia's credit you know i think that idea that that is the way the world works is also the arc's worldview and she is very much the one sort of in open rebellion against that yeah you know yes. like both art culture at its most extreme and grounder culture at its most extreme have that very xenophobic us versus them. You know, I'll kill anyone I have to kill who is not of my people to protect my people sort of mentality. And, you know, the sort of the, the beginning of the really great Octavia arc where she's the person who's saying like, hey, there could be a better way. You know, I think this is, I, I do like that element of the storyline you know there's a lot that i like there's a lot that i like in their relationship i i was weirded out i was like oh that's right they kiss really early right. but 
there's a certain but Octavia the rebel I like a yeah, lot. Yeah, like I like that she is she is the person who is able to sort of look from a slightly detached perspective. Yeah. At, you know, how other these other people are operating and say like, no, that's dumb. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't have to be like this. We could do it other ways. Um yeah, exactly. so like that element of it I like. The sort of like Romeo and Juliet story thing that's going like I this is <laughs> <laughs> established Linktavia, I like, you know, the establishment, the establishing of Linktavia, Linktavia, I'm still a little bit like, Ugh. yeah, yeah, we're, we're in the phase where I'm just kind of like, this is still a bit sketchy. Yeah, it's a little weird. Although it's a little it, weird. it does, it does lead to, I will say, perhaps my single most likable Finn yes. moment of the whole series yes. is in this episode where Octavia sneaks Lincoln out of the dropship. He runs smack face first into Finn and they have that kind of silent eye contact conference. And then Finn, instead of saying or doing anything, he immediately susses out exactly what's happened. He knows what Octavia did. He never rats her out. And he just gives a little nod, like go this way instead of that way. So Lincoln can kind of disappear. And I remember even the first time I watched this being like, this is your high point, Finn Collins. Like this is like, like that's a, he's very. Well, that's the interesting thing about Finn, I think is like on sort of like really theoretical bigger sort of I, I don't even know if big picture is the right term like there's there's an ability that Finn has in a situation like that for instance to look at someone who stabbed him mm-hmm. and sort of recognize like be able to recognize that you know like he stabbed me but he didn't deserve to be like captured and tortured and he doesn't deserve to die and, 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 and like a little bit like Jaha, he's able to sort of like let go of his personal, you know, anger or whatever, you know, he's let, he's able to mm-hmm. let go of the fact that he was personally wronged by Lincoln in favor of what he sees as the more right thing to do, which is to let him escape rather than let him have whatever, you know, gruesome fate he's likely to have if he stays. So like Finn has this ability to look at a situation and, and sort of, decide from a somewhat he's, he's able to sort of say like all right in this situation here is the right thing to do mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah yeah so but this is one of those few times when yeah when i'm like that was that was yeah. solid that was a solid thing to do yeah. there like, what, a, what a good like, bro yeah you're, you're being a good bro well, for just a minute it's interesting it's and maybe we should we should touch on a little bit on kind of the Finn and Raven stuff because that does come back in this episode but I you know I think for me I think one of the things and you know and and obviously on on rewatching, you know the the more I rewatch it the like the less I like Finn it's (laughs) you know I think I think I I disliked him but less venomously the first time through and now I'm just like oh my god every time I go back and rewatch I'm like I forget how much Finn there is (laughs) but I do you know I think I think what's what's interesting, what makes like what makes it complicated to sort of dissect the character of Finn is like the moments when I like him, you know, like when they were trying for sort of a pacifist voice at Clark's side whose job is to really push back against the kind of warlike go to violence first before anything else kind of instincts of Bellamy. I mean, I think part of it is complicated by my wish that that had been Wells's role. Yeah. But I think that, so so he does, in a lot of ways, there are moments in season one where he serves a really interesting kind of structural function in sort of a similar way to the, like, Abby Kane with Jaha in the middle trifecta on the arc. So there are moments where the Finn on one side, Bellamy on the other side, Clark in the middle trying to find the 
the sort of third, more centrist path, you know, of leadership is interesting. And so and this is one of those moments where like pacifist Finn deciding it's better to make sure that this person doesn't get killed for just sort of doing what he like for something that was essentially a, a attack of self-defense you know mm-hmm. they came into lincoln's house they attacked him he stabbed them you know so i think finn's ability to not hold a grudge that sort of see that for what it is and and not want him to suffer for that yeah. you know i think is is part of that finn the pacifist then we sort of see more of you know in the in unity day in the next episode that that sort of comes more to the fore so that so those threads of thin i like and i'm interested in and it's where we sort of get into the kind of fuckboy territory <laughs> with all of this love triangle stuff that it's like it makes it hard for me to root for finn the voice like of one of you know like finn is one of clark's lieutenants basically it's hard to root for that when all of the stuff with the love triangle makes him just so wildly unlikable. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think like part of the problem is that all that stuff is really is so mixed up together. So like the yeah. thing about yeah. Finn, like Finn to me is like that guy you know in college who's majoring in philosophy and he has really, <laughs> really like uh, decided opinions about morals. You know, like he's the guy who has mm. like Tibetan peace flags, you know, on his porch <laughs> and like wears a free Mumia t-shirt or whatever. Like, I don't know what the things are now, but like, you know, it's like, he's like the guy who is like sort of wears insignias for every single possible anti-war social justice cause and also is like the douchebag who cheats on his girlfriend with this other girl and then like keeps trying to tell the other girl that she's like the love of his life while he won't break up with the first girl like you know he's so he's just like he's just like the classic college douche bro you know like faux hippie whatever like believes in all the quote-unquote right things but is actually a really terrible person Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a very that's true it is all actually kind of internally consistent you're right you're right so he has these like very he has very set black and white opinions about what is right and wrong you know and like so Mm -hmm. he's very much sort of like he is anti-violence not because he's particularly thought it through in every individual case, but just because he's anti-violence. It's just like, violence is bad, you know? Like, so therefore anything, any kind of violence is bad. And he's right about that a lot of the time. Like, this obviously was the right thing to do. But when we get to Unity Day's next episode, like, I I have a whole long rant to go on about his peace plans, his peace negotiation plans. Like, why, like, in theory, that's a great idea. And in execution, it's a fucking disaster. And he's a douchebag for trying to do it. So it's sort of like, uh, in theory, he's a pacifist. He, he's always going right. to be the one who is against whatever the sort of violent solution is. But I don't think, like, to me, it's not really the product of any particularly deep or well-thought-out conviction. You know, he's not Lincoln, who right. has committed right. violence and who understands how violence sort of operates in the larger sort of political world, good and bad, and has chosen to avoid it when possible himself. And he has sort of like seemingly dedicated himself to sort of trying to protect people. He's not that, you know, like this is like Finn is the Mm -hmm. guy who like fucks off when everyone else is working on the wall to like wander around the woods and he doesn't want to share with other people. Like it's not, it's not like, it's not real altruism, you know? Yeah. He's just like on the quad with his guitar, you know, like. 
like talking about how horrible the world is or whatever. Well, and I think one of the things that that really complicates it is how I like I think like in line with what you're saying, how much the decisions that he makes to do substantive diplomatic or or peacemaking things seem to be undertaken with the goal of like wooing Clark exactly. or getting Clark's exactly. attention or reestablishing his position as the person she should trust because what we really see ramping up in this episode towards the end of it is you know is how much of this is shaped by who is already beginning to feel like a deeply personal jealousy of Bellamy and of Bellamy kind of supplanting him as the person that Clark feels now that she can really trust. You know, she and Bellamy have gone through this experience together. Bellamy's been like honest to the point of painfully raw with her. And and Finn, she feels like has lied, you know, has put her in this horrible position by his inherent dishonesty. And so like Clark telling him Bellamy's the person that she can trust now and Finn you know it, it it sort of lends this coloring to okay how much of Finn's resistance to the notion of guns and weaponry like you said comes from deeply held beliefs and how much of it comes from I don't like that Bellamy guy exactly. and I don't like that you like him and are listening to him and so it's interesting because it's like I think there was and this is why I feel like I I really wonder how differently this storyline could all play out if it was Wells instead of Finn. Mm-hmm. If you have a, you know, a, a measured, trustworthy voice articulating on one side and, you know, a trustworthy voice articulating on the other, Clark in the middle having to figure out what the fuck she's supposed to do, you know, which we can already see, you know, and we see even more in that scene with her, with the dad hallucination, how much she's starting to crack from the pressure of everybody's expectations. You know, I think that gets into some really interesting questions about when is diplomacy the smart play when is violence the smart play Mm -hmm. because you can't necessarily none of it's black and white there are no rules it's never all one or all the other the the complication with finn is that you know it's it's hard to divorce finn's desire to create a peaceful solution to create a you know treaty with the grounders is that because that's what you want or is that because that's how you think you're going to win back your position as the guy that Clark trusts Well, and I think like one really telling thing is that Finn ran into Lincoln while he was on the way out of the dropship and like didn't mm-hmm. raise the alarm. But Finn didn't give mm-hmm. a fuck about Lincoln before that. He didn't raise a finger yeah. to try to save him. He wasn't like trying to convince Clark to let him go. And he, like he wasn't doing anything. You know, he didn't say a word about it. So, like, he gets, like, a minimum amount of credit for, like, not foiling the escape plan. But it's not like he had any Mm. actual role in saving Lincoln actively. He didn't. He didn't do anything. Right. You know, and, like, not that he, like, Lincoln's the guy who stabbed him. You know, he almost died because of Lincoln. Not like, you know, like, whatever. It's fine. But he, again, it was sort of like, it was a moment and he made a decision. Right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I think, so I think this is part of the reason why it really comes across as being, like, not about his genuinely held convictions and more about his sort mm. of, yeah, his, like, desire to be, like, to be sort of, like, close to Clark and also to be seen as a kind of, like, authority leader in the camp, which he's, like, absolutely not earned at all, you know? Like, he hasn't done anything. Yeah, it's, like, how much of this is just kind of, like, a dick-measuring contest with Bellamy? Exactly, yeah. And, like, the other thing that, of course, that's really frustrating, I mean, you know, it's, well... <laughs> You know, I think it, it also is sort of all mixed up with the fact that, like, when Clark in that first scene is sort of 
trying is like bandaging him up. He's trying to talk to her and, and she's like not having it. The skin crawling discomfort of him trying to get Clark to talk to him about, you know, feelings. And then uh, Raven yes. coming in, you know, and like sort of seeing that something weird is happening. Uh, and then Bellamy popping his head in and Finn clearly being jealous. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and like Finn tries starts trying to talk to Raven and you know and like a lot of that is on Raven because Raven says like I know and I don't want to talk about it you know like she really really like she's just like trying so hard to make it in the past you know she just wants it to go away she just wants to try to like she wants to kind of like try to keep her illusions as long as she can which is like totally understandable and Finn just goes with it and I think that's one of those moments where like he just doesn't want to upset her you know but there is just like something so skeezy about the fact that like all that went down then he's like okay well I guess if you want to fuck me then we'll just fuck you know it's just like oh god I just (laughs) you know like it really yeah I do understand you know I understand where Finn is coming from in that moment but it's just like to me it's just so wrong (laughs) well and his his resistance is so like token yeah like, he's like, like no, 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 no. Have... no sex until we talk. Okay. And she's like, yes. And then he's like, well, all right, fine. Yeah, right, you know? exactly. And, and it doesn't stop me. Like, yeah. he, you know, she says, like, do you love me? He says, always. He knows exactly what she's going for. And it doesn't stop him mm-hmm. from continuing to try to, like, right. you know, make time with Clark on the DL. So, like, yeah. And Raven having to watch, like, Raven, you know, like, feeling the weird shit in the air between Finn and Clark that Clark is trying so hard, like, from the minute Raven arrives and she realizes what the haps is I you know like Clark does everything right yes yes you know like Clark she shuts it down she does not want to be alone with him she will not talk be you know he's trying to do the thing that people do when they're manipulating you which is like if I trap you into a long conversation about my emotions about this thing that's happening then it kind of scratches that intimacy itch mm-hmm. and she won't let him have that satisfaction mm-hmm. yeah she does not engage like he like he wants to explain himself or woo her back or whatever or just have her like like, I don't want the women to be mad at me, yeah. you know? And she's just, like, shuts it down. She leaves the camp. She gets out of there, you know? So I just, you know, there's everything that she does, I think, is just exactly right and so admirable. And you know how hard it is for her. Yeah. You, know, you watch her, her little face crumple every time yeah. she has to, like, watching Finn and Raven together, but also, like wanting to not interfere with that you know going away leaving them alone saying like i'm leaving for the day you stay with finn you know yeah, like that's yeah, it. Yeah. like it's so pure and beautiful she's trying so hard yeah to like recuse herself from this and love finn triangle won't let her, yeah know? it's just like it's so like he doesn't understand how unfair that is to clark you know like he just doesn't yeah. get it because he's like so worried about his feelings yeah and not thinking about hers or raven's really you know other than like just or raven's at all yeah like yeah, other than just like Poor trying to not to like oh my god can Raven all I want in season 5 all I want for Raven before the end of the series is to have one post-coital experience that isn't horrifically horribly awkward that's all I want oh my god she's 3 for 3 yeah like this one and then Bellamy and then uh and And Wick Wick. in season 2 and they're all just like Mm -hmm. just if not like kind of like bleh in the moment then like immediately afterwards just awful like Finn and Raven laying there is just like oh my god 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 
Like, all I want yeah, for Raven I, is one, like, joyous post- post-coital scene. That's all I want for I Raven. I know. Like, I, I really, I have, I have a lot of, uh, you know, and this is something that kind of, a conversation that's cropped up a lot in the fandom is, like, a sort of ongoing conversation about how the show frames Raven's sexuality. Yeah. You know, how we routinely see, and it starts here. Yeah. You know, she does it here. Like, Raven using sex to avoid dealing with more complicated problems. Mm-hmm. And it isn't that that's not a real thing that people do. Mm-hmm. It And it isn't that, you know, Raven is our perfect angel who can't have any character flaws because that isn't very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think there are some, you know, big questions to sort of get into, like, do you have to be sort of extra careful to not play into over-sexualized Latina stereotypes? So, you know, that's part of it. But it's also, in addition to that, I think it just sort of becomes... It's a painful thing to have to watch that makes it sort of feel like I, I want to know why this is the well they keep going back to. Yeah. You know, like bad like bad sex or or even like fine sex that ends up being terrible for her for emotional reasons, mm-hmm. being the thing that is sort of her kind of continual source of conflict. Yeah. You know, like yeah. which is why we perfect so I don't resolution know. It, for her to have a happy post sex experience by the end of the show. I'm just yes. saying. <laughs> yes. Like I really I I mean, and, and, you know, six years in space, it's like she has to bang at least one of them, most realistically between two to three, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's nothing to do on the arc. So the, you know, the, the space orgy headcanons, I think, are totally real. But I do, I, I would like to see that too. You know, I, I mean, I, I've long been on team Give Raven Ray as a girlfriend, but I, I, you know, whoever it ends up being, I feel the same way. I think it. I'm really glad that last season we got an arc for her that, you know, like season three and season four were all about Raven dealing with Raven's yes, shit. And I yes, loved me that. Too. I that was so important. Yes. You know, it was it was about her leg. It was about her trauma. It was about her coming to terms with the fact that her mind and her brain are extraordinary and that having a physical impairment that prevents her from being able to realistically do some physical things does not take anything away from how vital she is to everybody else's survival you know her moving back into that hero role and uh, and the really wonderful and beautiful choice that they made after what's his name who played Wick was it was oh yeah Steve Charlie yeah yeah after they so the sort of the rumor and I and I'm I feel like this has been confirmed I don't know for sure if it's been confirmed but that the story that I had heard was that a bunch of the scenes that were scenes that were were written for Wick that were then handed off to Sinclair which I honestly feel like was such a beautiful choice you know Mm -hmm, to loop mm -hmm. back in that relationship for Raven from somebody who does not want anything from her sexually who doesn't Mm -hmm. see her first and foremost as a sexual being or you know as girlfriend material who cares about her in this parental and and total totally pure way and sees that full depth of her potential and so letting that and her kind of you know recentering her relationship with her friends and the rest of the squad be the things that really shape her I think is really is really wonderful but I think that having having gone through that having sort of put Raven through that arc and now with this six-year time jump I I'm with you I'm I'm ready for them to give her another romantic relationship that is not hitting the same plot beats as the previous three sexual encounters we seen her had that were sort of presented as a like raven fucks people instead of dealing with her shit yes you know like like let's let's 
let's be done with that and then sort of see how this new six years in the future co-leader with Bellamy having been through all of this stuff that version of Raven who is she in a relationship yeah I'd be very interested yes, to see I agree relationship yeah. for Raven Reyes season five that's what we want to see yes exactly now that Finn yep. is long dead and behind us exactly yes <laughs> Finn and his high key jealousy of Bellamy it's also weird because Finn yeah. is like it's interesting to me that Finn Finn blames Bellamy exclusively for torturing Lincoln like when he's trying to when mm-hmm. he's like freaking out because you know because Clark trusts Bellamy and they brought the guns back he says he tortured Lincoln you know which is interesting to me because like Raven did too and mm-hmm. Clark Clark approved of it. Clark gave the go-ahead. So they're all kind of three equally implicated in that. But Finn really wants yeah. to, like, pin the blame on Bellamy entirely. Yes. Yeah. In a way that, you know, like, Octavia makes that sort of swipe at Raven when they're at the, like, water tank thing. So Octavia remembers that Raven was a part of it. Clark remembers mm-hmm. that she was a part of it. You know, so it, I think that kind of adds to, the, like, the weird jealousy thing that, like, Raven is just sort of, or uh, Finn is just kind of, like, trying to sort of, like, make, really make Bellamy the bad guy. You know, like, he is, yeah. yeah he's constructed a version of this narrative where everything is Bellamy's fault, including things that weren't Bellamy's fault, because that fits in with his worldview. Yeah. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't want to be mad at Clark and Raven. He wants doesn't want Clark and Raven to be mad at him. But I, you know, I think that it it is really telling that he that already, you know, he's sort of manipulating his own understanding of the facts to find a way to make to sort of position himself as the anti-Bellamy yeah. or Bellamy is the opposite of yeah. him you know to sort of like set up this kind of diametrically opposed dynamic when in fact the reality is a lot more nuanced mm-hmm. than that yeah exactly exactly the reality is a lot messier you know the reality is that mm-hmm. this isn't just a decision that any one person made definitively in a single moment it was sort of a th- Thing that arose through this these circumstances that a bunch of people kind of collectively participated in you know and it's much much more messy and fraught and and sort of it's more disturbing because you know it's like it's easier to do like this is the thing about Finn he wants things to be black and white because it's easier to make clear moral determinations you know like this good that bad this person good that person bad when the reality you know is like those kinds of lines are almost impossible to draw most of the time and that's just like that's not very comforting you know like it's not comforting nobody wants to think like well in this situation I might do something horrible but that's usually the truth right there's no such thing as like an inherently good person (laughs) right which is one of the things that I love about the show and especially about season one is the way that it really kind of like digs into that and if maybe we can from this is a good place to transition over to the Bellamy and Clark portion of this yes because like I think that's the thing that that both of them are really really grappling with you know like this is an episode like okay so <laughs> obviously I'm gonna have a lot of Valark feels in this <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm wearing my Valark t-shirt. I'm all prepared. Oh, God. But, like, but one of the things, like, okay, so one of the things that hooked me, like, one of the reasons why I love, why I ship them so much, why I'm so attached to this relationship, you know, and why this episode is, like, really where I was, like, a goner, ultimately, is because of the way that this episode is, like, it's a story, you know, it's, like, a story about these two people going off together on this little trip and then having this, like, really intense experience together and this kind of, like, going through this sort of, like, catharsis and sort of development together. But it's also really very much about, you know, like, each of them individually 
facing a reckoning, their own kind of reckoning at the same time and helping each other find a way mm-hmm. through that reckoning, you know, find a way, find yeah. a way to cope with what they're trying to deal with and move on from it together. And like, I think if that, like, that's the kind of like sort of the way that the narrative brings them together at these key moments and sort of positions Mm -hmm. them in a way, you know, here and then repeatedly throughout the show, I think positions them in a way where they are the person that they sort of like need in order to sort of process things. Like that's the kind of dynamic that I really, really love about them Mm -hmm. and why I'm sort of like, you know, even if they never make out, I'd love if they made out, but even if they never make out, as long as that's true, I'm happy, you know, because that's, that's the thing that I that I ship, you know, mm-hmm. like that's the dynamic I like. And I think this episode, like the more I watch this episode, the more I love it. You know, like the the more I watch mm-hmm. it, the more intricate and well done I think it is. Because I think the like, the really really cool thing is that you know from the very beginning of this episode we get set up the individual sort of like dark night of the soul that Clark and Bellamy are gonna go through. So like mm-hmm. Bellamy at the beginning of the episode, he's sitting in front of Lincoln, and like again, you know, we say this every week, but just like kudos to Bob Morley and the things that he can do with his face Mm -hmm. (laughs) but just like you know so we have this we have Lincoln strung up there in that sort of perfect like Jesus-y sort of way you know as as sort of like you know but I think that actually like I sort of joke but I think it actually really really works because like Jesus crucifixion symbolically he sort of took on the sins of mankind right like Mm -hmm. Jesus sort of like took on the sins and the punishment for those sins for you know you right like you're the Christian Right, right, exactly. Yes, okay. You you are forgiven because he served the role of the ritual sacrifice on behalf of you washing away all the things that you did. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and, and that, which actually comes back interestingly in the Clark and Bellamy, the idea of a person being able to give another person absolution. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think like having Lincoln in that, you know, with his arms out, you know, and sort of that like mm-hmm. crucifix pose, even though the cross isn't there, his body bearing all of the, the wounds that were inflicted on him and and like you know it just occurred to me that like it may not be a coincidence that Bellamy drove a spike through his hand because mm-hmm. obviously that is like mm-hmm. th- that's one of Jesus's wounds yeah 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 you know so so and the flogging and the flogging yep and so like Lincoln I think in this in for Bellamy at the beginning of this episode he's become sort of like he has he has become symbolic of you know all of the sins that Bellamy has committed since the moment that he said yes to Shumway Mm -hmm. and Lincoln is an appropriate figure to be symbolic of that of course because like all of the things that Bellamy did and the sort of kind of decision making he was making and the things that were driving him did culminate in him deciding to kidnap him and try to get you know information from him so like we start out with Bellamy kind of like facing really like facing the symbol of all the things he's done wrong and like being almost unable to lift his eyes to look at Lincoln you know with like such mm-hmm. as like the the heaviness of his guilt where like he's ostensibly guarding him but you can tell it's just kind of like a penance for him to sit there you know and sort right. of like witness the things that he's done and then for Clark of course you know like the kind of introductory scene we get the like exposition about like here's why you have to leave camp and go on this trip and then after that you know she has a little conversation with Jaha where he tries to get her to you know talk to her mom and she says I know you think that you did what you had to do but I don't see it that way and I never will you know so like so on Clark's side we're sort of like reminded that she's sort of unable to let go and unable to forgive like the the sort of the mm-hmm. thing that she's carrying that's kind of tearing her apart one of them you know is 
the way that she's clinging to, you know, not just clinging to her pain and loss, but also sort of clinging to that pain as, and, and her anger as being, like, important for proving that it was wrong, if that makes sense. You know, like, she's sort of clinging mm-hmm. to it as the, like, she's clinging to that, her, her not forgiving as a way, as a form of punishment, right? Like, there is no punishment, there's no justice right. forthcoming, right? So, like, she has to hang on to her sense that this was wrong. But it's kind of, like, eating her up inside, you know, like, this, her inability to forgive, her inability to let go is, like, right. the thing that's kind of, like, eating her up inside. But it's, like, fascinating because, you know, so we start out at the beginning where we have a Bellamy who really believes from, from what he says over and over, what he tells Clark about, like, you know, Jaha is going to kill me when he comes down here. You know, he's not just going to forgive and forget the way that he's sort of punishing himself by sort of forcing himself to sit there in front of Lincoln. Like, there's, we have a, we have a Bellamy who doesn't believe that forgiveness is possible. You know, a Bellamy who believes that because right. he's done bad things, he is utterly defined by them forever and can never be made clean you know can never sort of like transcend them or be forgiven for them and a clerk who is unable to give forgiveness who is unable to extend forgiveness and it's just like the so like the ending winds up being this beautiful full circle you know but i won't go into that just yet because we'll get there so that's my beginning rant (laughs) one of many (laughs) Uh. (laughs) yeah no i really um yeah i i like I do like that it really that it sets us up right away, you know, from from the cold open basically with this sort of once you know where things are going to go kind of foreshadowing of what's the sort of emotional crisis that she's in, what's the kind of emotional crisis that he's in and and the way that, you know, all of the sort of the way the other characters kind of, you know, play into that. Like it's really impossible for Bellamy to separate his Lincoln guilt from the complexity of his relationship with Octavia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like Octavia is sort of a hardwired so so it's all it's all sort of bigger than the moment yeah. you know it's also tied into his failure to protect Octavia yeah, yeah know, his guilt from about being that. kidnapped in the first place that's what led to all of this well, happening and, the, and you know, know and, and he then, shot Jaha because he was trying to protect you know like all these sort of like, exactly yeah and and you know, and her like utter her her sort of like anger at him and her her rejection mm-hmm. of him for having made those choices. You know, like where that he just like yeah. I mean, her her inability to forgive him is part of what's driving right. his inability to forgive himself. Yeah, you know, I'm such a I'm such a sucker for the family feels. Yeah, on oh the my show. god, I know. and and anytime we get Blake and Griffin kind of family dynamic parallels, I'm just like a weepy puddle. But I like I you know I like the way they position Clark and. Bellamy is inverses of each other you know we we have an Octavia who is unable to forgive Bellamy or or can't get past her perspective on the things that Bellamy has done in a way that's very much like Clark's inability to contextualize the choices that her mother made. Exactly, you know? and, exactly. And we watched the process of Bellamy, I mean, well, not with the Shumway thing until the flashback we get later, but everything else, you know, on the ground, we've watched him go through the process of making those decisions. And so we can see with Bellamy, we can see what's happening from both his and Octavia's side. We can mm-hmm. see why Octavia is angry at him, why Octavia feels like the things that he's done are unconscionable but we also can see why Bellamy in those moments faced with those choices made the choices that he made and so we both can see why knowing what we know about who he is as a person why he struggles so hard to forgive himself and why Octavia struggles so hard to forgive him but also why he isn't the monster that he thinks that he Mm -hmm. is and so we have that kind of context for him and the thing that makes 
that makes the Abby and Clark thing so complicated and, and why that Jake scene is so beautiful is because all of that happened both a year ago and off screen. Mm-hmm. So it isn't until season two with that underground scene with Kane where we really get to hear Abby's perspective on her choices, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where we get to see Abby kind of go through what Bellamy goes through here, you know, in sort of in some interestingly kind of parallel circumstances, you know, sort of like trapped in a place facing physical trauma with somebody who's sort of in the same position as you, you sort of can bear your soul mm-hmm. because you're in these kind of heightened circumstances. And so, but we don't have that here. We have only what Clark sees, you know, and so that's why I think her dad coming to her to kind of chip away at that a little bit, you know, her dad being the voice that she trusts, I think is really, you know, is really beautiful. But I like that they position that this is how much the show from the from the get-go is about these families. Yeah. You know, these families trying to sort of find a way back together. You know, all the fractures that occur that everyone is trying to sort of mend all the time. You know, Clark doesn't want to hate her mother. She doesn't want to be angry at her, but she also can't get past the thing that Abby did because she doesn't understand it yet. So I, yeah, so I really, I like, I like what they begin to build of that kind of juxtaposition of Clark in some ways is our lens and Bellamy's lens into Octavia because we're sort of watching Clark have to learn how to forgive somebody for a choice that she still doesn't really understand. Yeah. You know, and then it's really heartbreaking at the end where we see that Octavia just is not there. Yeah. You know, like Octavia is not ready for that. She doesn't, she hasn't gone through the thing that Clark has gone through that has sort of opened her eyes to being like, you know, maybe letting go of this anger. Maybe this anger isn't, isn't helpful to me. Maybe it's holding me back from something. I I just like every time I watch, I rewatch this episode, the Jake and Clark scene just like gets me more. Like, I think it's just like such a beautiful scene. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, you know, over the years that I think I really like about this show is that. I think, like, a lot of the time, sort of recurringly, it has a really kind of, like, beautiful and profound perspective on on forgiveness that I mm-hmm. appreciate. That's one of those aspects, those, like, little aspects of light, you know, in an otherwise often very dark show. And, um, and this is kind of, like, the first articulation of that we get. And, like, I think probably my favorite articulation of it, Everything about Clark in that scene just gets me, you know, like how she crumples when she sees her dad, you know, just like how palpable it is that she misses him so much, you know, that this is the face that she, this is the person that she desperately wishes that she could talk to right now, you know, like the person who can, you know, like it's clear like her dad was the person who, who could make the world make sense to her again. Mm -hmm. And just the like quintessential Clark Griffin moment of like, I'm trying, I'm trying all the time, you know, like if that's if the oh, number God. one most yeah. Clark Griffin thing in the world is like, she just fucking tries yeah. so hard. And how young she looks in yeah, that moment. Yeah, she's so young. She's so like just tired. She's trying her mm-hmm. best. You know, she's trying to do her best. Clark in the scene is amazing because I think like Clark still hangs on to a little bit. She knows a little bit what's happening to her, you know, like she knows mm-hmm. that it's impossible that her dad is there. And so she, and like, and even hallucination, hallucination, Jake says to her, like, I think why more important than how, you know? So like, this is Clark talking to her. So she's like, she's sort of counseling herself. She's found a sort of like friendly face that she can listen to, to say the things that are inside her that she knows she needs to hear, you know? So like somewhere inside Clark, she knows that hanging on to her anger and her resentment at her mother, you know, and her, her sort of 
thwarted need for justice for something for which there wasn't really a you know a right and a wrong like that's the problem like she's so angry she wants Mm -hmm. she wants punishment she wants justice for her father but it wasn't a situation that was black and white you know this isn't a situation where you can say like this person is a murderer and this person is innocent you know like it was it was one of those yeah like abby's involved but also jaha's involved and also jake made choices exactly and and jake you know accepted those choices um, yeah. Like when Jake, you know, when Jake was going into the going to get floated, it's clear like he accepted that this is the outcome of the choices that he made. Yeah. And and, you know, so so I think like Clark on some level and, and like it's, you know, it's sweet, too, that I think like the part of her that is her father's daughter recognizes that, you know, there's a piece of her that yes. understands that, you know, who sort of who, who even through her grief and that in her in that moment when she lost him could see, you know, could like perceive that he understood and and I just I just love that sort of moment of confrontation where she says where he he tells her you know forgiveness isn't about what people deserve like I think that's like just such an enormously important little kind of like thesis statement for the show you know like I think that's something that I yeah. think that's like a kind of like an assumption that the show operates on a lot of the time and I think it's like it's so important because like because it's so true you know like forgiveness isn't about mm-hmm. what people deserve forgiveness isn't really about people earning it you know like the other person right it's really about it's about you you know it's about like letting go of of anger and and letting go of pain and like choosing to move on you know choosing to be generous choosing to like you have to choose to forgive someone it doesn't matter what they did or didn't do you know you have and like and that's the difficult thing on the other side if you've wronged someone you can't demand forgiveness like you know you just have to accept right you you don't you know and it's kind of up to them but like i just thought that was like i don't know i just like really love that that line yeah no i love i love it too i and i think it it really gets at one of the sort of beautiful little kind of running threads throughout the show that we see a lot we see in a lot of different characters, but often I think most clearly kind of evidenced by Clark is sort of the corrosive nature of holding a grudge. Yeah. You know, yeah. like what it does to you more than what it does to the other person that you're angry at to hold on to resentment for things that are in the past that you can't change. Well, you know, like, look I at think- Octavia's entire arc in season four. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like what, it, what does it turn you into yeah. when you can't sort of move past and let go of these things and that darkness. And what I love about, I mean, there's, I'm with you. I, I love this scene so much. And one of the things that I think is really important to kind of unpack about the, which we sort of tapped on a little bit earlier, you know, the role of the Jake hallucination and the role of the Jaha hallucination serves sort of a similar purpose in that they push Clark and Bellamy to, a really urgent realization, mm-hmm. but they go about it in in incredibly different ways. Mm-hmm. And the thing, you know, the thing that is specific to the Jake and Clark scene is that I think both for Clark and for us, the audience, I feel very much like we are meant to hear everything that sort of hallucination Jake says as being what what the show wants us to believe the real Jake Griffin would say. Yeah. You know, so I think Clark realizing and us the audience realizing that Jake would never that Jake is not in the afterlife somewhere furious at Abby. You know, mm-hmm. like that Jake Jake isn't angry. He's not nursing some sense of betrayal. You know, mm-hmm. like that he mm-hmm. would that he would have understood and forgiven you know abby and jaha for the thing that they did because again because they all made choices 
And so, so I like this scene as, you know, as our first real kind of, I guess not absolution of Abby is the wrong word, but it's, it's more like a, a sort of acknowledgement of the complexity of the choices that were in front of her, Mm -hmm. that she made the best choice available to her at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that hearing that kind of vindication coming from Jake is really important, both because it sort of tells the audience, like, Jake understands what Abby did, and so she's, you know, she's not the villain in this. But it also, even more crucially than that, it tells us that on a deep, unconscious, you know, subconscious level, Clark knows that. Mm -hmm. Like, Jake is both Jake Griffin saying things and Clark saying things to herself. And so I think when he says to her the line about forgiveness isn't about what people deserve... And when, you know, he kind of gives her that sort of disappointed dad look when she talks, like, well, I can't forgive her, I can't get past it, you know, and he just sort of, like, gives her the look. You know, you feel like it reads like you're watching this sort of beautiful kind of bittersweet little pastiche of real Jake Griffin parenting moments. You know, that's the look that he gave her when she, you know, was mad about something and wouldn't let it go, and he would give her that kind of look. You know, it makes you wonder, like, was was that line about forgiveness? Was that something that he said to her before? Yeah. You know, is she hearing things that he said to her in the past that are based in you know who he was as her dad? And then also, you know, I I think one thread in this little in the sort of the Griffin family trifecta that's that's never really sort of implied more than it is made textual, but I I think it adds a really interesting layer to. Clark and Abby's relationship is that this is a place where we really get and it's and it's sort of tapped out a little bit in the flashbacks in 102 or 3 103 where we see Jake before this sort of pretty strong implication that Clark was always incredibly close with her dad and had a bit more of a distant relationship with her mom yeah you know like that that Jake was the parent that she was close to and had that kind of ease and, you know, affection and familiarity and comfort and trust with the person that she, like, opened up to. And that perhaps for whatever reason, she sort of had that a bit less, you know, on on the arc initially with Abby. And so then sort of watching over the course of, of four seasons, the relationship that Abby and Clark develop together, I think it, you know, it adds another sort of layer to that of, like, the closeness that they develop that we see them, you know, having with each other now, they, they might not have had that on the Yeah. Arc. You know, that's sort of an, but after Jake's gone, when they're all each other has, it sort of shifts their relationship, you know, in a very different well, way. Well, I think it's and, also interesting that like, I mean, I think Clark is more like her mom than she's like her dad, you know, in a yes. way where I could see that being why she like maybe clashes more. She's got that sort of like, yeah, you know, gonzo determination, you know, just like steely, like, fuck it, I'm going to do the thing that I feel like I need to do at all costs sort of um, attitude. Yeah. She gets that from her mom, you know, which is part of what's feeding this kind of like, I can't forgive her, you know, because like, yeah, that, exactly. that is clearly not a Jake thing. That's much more an Abby thing, you know, exactly. sort of like, yeah. I got my people and I got my not people, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One, you know, one thing about Clark that makes Clark such a, like, a, a a beautiful, wonderful, and complex and awesome character is, like, Clark does have this, like, astonishingly deep ability to forgive, you know? Like, that is something that is consistent mm-hmm. in her, that Clark 
Clark can forgive in a way that no one else can. You know, like, Jaha can compartmentalize and set things aside. And that's not what Clark does. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Clark... Yeah. Clark just, like, accepts people and, and accepts mm-hmm. them at her best. You know, she can just sort of, like, accept and let go and, and sort of love people, continue to love people, not even despite what they did, they had done before, but almost just, like, because she mm-hmm. can see them more fully. You know, like, she, she'll always be, like, mad first, but, like, you know, she's able to sort of, like, incorporate that and sort of, and find a way to make that bring her even deeper understanding. And when it's gone, it really is gone. Exactly, yeah. Like, it doesn't, she doesn't, you know say okay yes i forgive you and then still hold on to it like once she's made that decision that it's in the past it is gone forever you know and that is really beautiful yeah exactly and that's like very rare and it's amazing and it's something that makes clark like so unique and like that's clearly like that's jake that's the jake in her coming through and i think it's also like you can kind of see you know over the seasons as as abby and clark have evolved you know like you can see the parts of Clark that are Jake coming out more you can and you can see the ways that like Jake's influence you know kind of crops up in Abby and I think oh yeah after Jake is gone you know Abby has to sort of internalize and take in the things about Jake that were important to her as a person because he's not there anymore you know she has to ask herself what would Jake say to me instead of just yeah so I think like as they've sort of developed this closer relationship over the years I think Jake is still so much a part of that because it's like the Jake parts of them you know, that are like, that are like sanding off the edges and softening those sort of spiky points that I think maybe they clashed on before and they're more able to sort of come together. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's, it's easy to sort of imagine, you know, and a lot of this is, is headcanon, but I think it's sort of, you can extrapolate a lot from the things that are there. You know, it's very easy to imagine what that family dynamic between the three of them was probably like with you know Clark and Abby being so similar in their you know forcefulness and their big personalities and their stubbornness with Jake probably frequently having to serve in both directions as kind of the peacemaker you know this is this I do not imagine that this is the first time that Jake has you know had to sort of sit down with Clark when she's mad at her mother and kind of like talk her through it just like I'm sure they you know like I can picture him and Abby you know lying in bed at night while Abby is like oh that kid makes me crazy and Jake's like Abby you know (laughs) yeah yeah like it it you completely believe like this was you know like this sort of big gentle sweet emotionally open frank straightforward honest man with these two you know tiny spiky firecracker personalities (laughs) where he's having the person who's like everybody calm down you know so so i i think it it's it's really beautiful sort of seeing him you know in this moment serve that role and i do feel like one of the things that i really love about um the way and particularly you know in that he he came back so forcefully in season four. Yeah. You yeah. know, for for Abby, for Kane, for Jaha, yeah. for Clark in a huge way, you know, in sort of hardwired into the mechanics of the plot and also just sort of in the kind of emotions, you know, in the characters. But, you know, but Kane tells Abby, like, Jake's a part of you. Mm-hmm. You know, Kane can see the way that, like you said, that the things that made Jake Jake, how she sort of folded those things into herself because she you know she sort of she has taken those things on and you know and for Clark very much so in the way we watch her kind of measure 
her own choices as a leader against this perception of herself as the one who would always, of course, do what Jake Griffin would do. Exactly, you know, yeah. and that when she's in that position, you know, like like how hard it is for her to make a choice that she knows in her heart is not the choice that her dad would make, but she also feels like she has to anyway, you know. So so her watching her get in season four that perspective on like this is what it feels like to stand where her dad stood, but also where Jaha stood and also where Abby stood, you know, from, from seeing that kind of the nuance of the thing that happened that led to her father's death, you know, she starts to kind of unpack it a little bit here, but, you know, even, you know, four seasons later, she's still sort of digging into what did that mean? Why did those people make those choices? And yeah. I, and I like that, you know, like for me as a person who has lost a parent, one of the things that I think this show at times does really, really right is that, and and I guess, and you know, like with many things, we see it most particularly in one particular character, mm-hmm. which is which is Clark. You know, like everyone has lost a parent, mm-hmm. and we don't get this depth with all of them necessarily um, that we do with Clark, and you know, and also I think in a lot of ways with with Bellamy, but um, but the way the relationship between Clark and Jake and the ongoing sort of continually unfurling and unraveling impact of his loss on Clark as being something that isn't over and resolved in a day, you know, is really important. And the way it continues to shape her in lots of different ways, even as she sort of is further away from the immediate kind of raw misery of that loss and that first kind of venomous, really, really sharp, furious kind of anger at everyone that she perceives as sort of the source of that but still you know the absence that he leaves in her life because of the person that he was and the way that absence shapes her I think is something that is handled in ways that are often really lovely Mm -hmm. you know the way the show kind of taps at both the sort of the Jake shaped hole in her life and also these little hints of you know, sort of what would Jake Griffin do in this moment that we see both her and Abby going through. So I like that. And I, I really like that in this scene, I think we see the, the picture of Jake that we get is both, you know, in a, in a really beautiful way, both entirely believable as real Jake Griffin saying things that Jake would say until that awful moment at the end where the illusion and the reality <laughs> kind of flip and you're sort of like, wait, what? what? Oh, oh my God, Why what? Why you saying you're the two? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God, what's happening? Um, yeah, but up until that point, of course, um, where it's, you know, he's full, fully believable as an accurate portrait of the real Jake. Mm-hmm. That if the if the framing device was that the real Jake came back from the grave instead of this being a hallucination, you're like, no, he'd say all these same things right. still. You know, he'd say in the exact same way. So it's fully plausible as an accurate memory of Jake, but it's also such a beautiful kind of look at the things that Clark knows, the things that she, you know, the direction that she knows that she is heading. You know, she knows, she knows that she has to forgive her mother, not just because... Because of the sort of nuance and complexity of the situation that her mother was in, meaning that her mother is not a bad person, but also because of the impact on her emotionally if she doesn't forgive her mother, you know, because of how much it hurts her to be this angry. Yes. And hearing that from somebody, you know, from the person that she perceives not just as her most trustworthy person in the world, but as the person that she sees as the victim of her mom's betrayal... 
I think from both of those directions, having it be Jake that says to her, this is going to ruin your life if you can't let go of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like all of this is like so important because I think this is, this sort of sets up why that final conversation under the tree between Bellamy and Clark is, you know, just as humongously emotionally important and healing to Clark as it is to Bellamy. Because Mm -hmm. when Clark, you know, when Clark offers Bellamy forgiveness, when Clark, you know, listens to him and then says, if you need forgiveness, I'll give that to you. It's not just like her, you know, like the important thing in there isn't just that she's offering Bellamy the forgiveness that he sort of like craves and needs. It's that that's the sort of culmination of this storyline where Clark is sort of like grappling with this inability to allow herself to let go and forgive, but the need to. And like, so we have this moment where Bellamy becomes the person, you know, for Clark, she, he, he becomes the person in this moment where she's beginning to move towards being able to, you know, to forgive her mother, but not quite there yet. He becomes a person who makes it possible for her to sort of like begin the process. She can, she can reach out. She can open herself up. She can offer forgiveness to someone, not because he deserves it, but because, just because, because he's a person, because like he has, he has more important, you know, there's like important things to be done. In the context of her conversation with Jake and all these things, that moment with Bellamy, like, that's a, that's a huge step for Clark's healing as well. You know, like, this is a moment where Bellamy becomes a person with whom Clark is sort of becomes capable of working through things that she isn't sort of emotionally capable or doesn't feel emotionally safe working through with other people. So, like, this is, like, a tremendously important moment of character development for Clark, you know, for her trajectory going forward. It's like a moment of of healing for her to be able to offer that to someone. And in addition to being like kind of like beginning of like forging this really deep bond between them, but I think this episode gets talked about, like understandably, obviously, like I, you know, <laughs> I love this episode as as a Balearic shipper, you know, and like I said, it's, this is the moment when I was sort of like, I was like, all right, I'm ride or die, you know, but so it gets talked about a lot in terms of like what it means for the ship, like the meaning, you know, the importance of this moment for the ship in a way that I think sometimes downplays how important it is for Bellamy and Clark as individual characters, you know, and like yes. Clark especially gets really downplayed as, you know, the importance to her as an individual character because She's the one offering something to Bellamy, so it winds up getting being framed often in discussion more as about being Bellamy. So I do think it's really, really important to just emphasize, like, this is a huge moment for Clark. This episode for Clark is about Clark figuring out how the fuck she can, like, forgive people for doing unforgivable things because she needs to be able to do that. You know, she needs to find a way for herself. She needs to figure out how to, like, get over this emotional hump and this is the context in which that becomes possible for her. I, I totally with you. I mean, I think it is, it's obvious why it's a delightful episode and particularly seen for, you know, for shipper reasons, because it really is sort of the beginning of that intimacy, you know, and it's filmed in a, in a way that's a little ship baby, you know, oh, like yeah, this, yeah. the close up of sure. his, his hand on her back when they're doing the shooting lessons yes. is a, oh, yeah, yeah. Is a really <laughs> under, I mean, like that's a, we haven't talked about that much, but that is a delightful. It is a delightful sequence, scene, you know? and and so there were the um the one hundred eight script was circulated around at least oh, the uh-huh. Blark fandom a little while ago. I think somebody went to the writers guild and like screenshotted the whole thing and posted it, or like screenshotted all the Blark scenes. I don't know if you you probably didn't see those. There's like everybody knows them in the on the Blark side, but maybe not elsewhere. Uh-huh. So like that scene, the the sort of stage directions or whatever they are in TV scripts, um for that scene is like. 
something like, <laughs> something like really, really extra. Like he's suddenly like, he's more, he's suddenly very affected or is it, he's more affected than he expected by his closeness to her or something like that. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. The moment where he's sort of like, okay, like, no, he's sort of fixing her stance. And then he's like, uh, 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 shit. You know, that was, that yeah. was in the yeah. script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I also have to say that whole sequence I mean, like, the whole, like, the whole thing from Bellamy kneeling on the ground and grinning at her when he finds guns to, like, their final conversation is just, like, adorable. But, like, I also love... His little, his little kid at Christmas grin when he, like, when the, you know, he kicks <laughs> over the barrel because he's just so grumpy, you know, and then, and then guns spill out. Yeah. And he's, like, down on his knees and he, like, picks up the gun and looks over his shoulder and it's almost like... Tom Haverford grin. I know. Like, yeah, he's like, yeah. he lights up. He's like, a gun. He's like a kid at Christmas. And I'm just like, like, oh my God, this is so weapons. Bellamy. Yeah. It's like so funny. And it's like, and part of me is like, this is so pure, but also that's really fucked up. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, like, that's the thing about, this thing about the show, honestly, is like, there's so many moments you're like, that's so pure. But then like, and then some part of the back of your brain is like, you know, that's fucked up. Like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the other thing about Shipping Blark is, like, the other, like, the, the first moment when I, like, when I had shippy feelings about them, when I was like, oh, God, this is going to be, like, a problem for me, potentially, maybe, eventually, if I ever, like, <laughs> Bellamy, um, is, like, when she's killing Adam, and they have, like, those tight close-ups of his, like, his face, yes. and sort of, like, and, and I remember thinking, like, oh, that's shippy, and I was like, oh, this is fucked up. <laughs> This is really fucked up. Mercy killing a a guy who just got like poisoned by acid fog, and I'm like, ooh. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you know that's just. But I mean, on that level, there is. Well, I mean, really, if you look at it really honestly, there is no, there is no extant ship in this fandom canon or not that is not tainted by some deeply fucked up. You know, like yes. Clark pulling a life knife on Lexa, Kane having Abby whipped. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. The, like every like Linktavia beginning with kidnapping and statutory <laughs> rape. Like if you if you dig into it too deeply, it's like they're all kind of fucked yeah, up. Yeah, like even so I guess even memory now, like Murphy and Amori, who are now uh-huh. like the sweetest, fluffiest ship. Like it started out with her betraying him and like leaving him to die in the desert. So you know. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So like, yeah. So it's like they're no all high ground. <laughs> is there a ship besides maybe Maxon <laughs> that isn't tainted by some somebody does something horrible to somebody else, and the only way that you can and and it and it requires that you accept on faith this central premise about forgiveness um, in order for that relationship to make sense. Maybe, you know, because someone has done something horrible to somebody else. Maybe Harper and Monty. I think Harper and Monty have not directly done yeah, oh, yeah, to yeah, each yeah. other. Yes, but they're Harper like, and Monty are totally pure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're like the only, which is, you know, cinnamon roll Monty. Like, exactly. Sorry, yeah, yeah, Chris yeah. Larkin, like you are forever cinnamon roll. Um, but yeah, <laughs> other than that, other than that, it's just like, look, everyone's, fucked up and really you yeah know, like in Everyone a real world context up. you're all horrible yeah. but we're not in a real world exactly context. yes <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it, well and it it reminds me of um my this is only tangentially related but my mom used to have this sort of running um kind of i guess joke comment that she would make when Catherine and my sister and I would like you know like swooning over you know action heroes and stuff in movies and she called it the Aragorn rule because it began with Aragorn 
which basically was the the things that make somebody appealing on television. You know, she's like, if a guy who looked exactly like Aragorn, you know, with covered in like, you know, blood and sweat and in his arm with his giant sword came and like sat down next to you on the bus, you'd be like, oh, holy shit. And you would like bolt immediately. She's like, he would be like smelly and covered in blood and you would be terrified and you would not find it hot at all. You would just bolt. Yeah. And and I and I feel deeply in my bones that like every single character on this show that I love somehow fits the Aragorn rule oh, where yeah. it's like, are there any of you that in real life I would be maybe Jackson. Maybe Jackson. That yeah. like that has that has never done anything I would find terrifying. Well but then Jackson, <laughs> even with the with like the City of Light stuff, with the alley stuff. That's true. Like, yeah. Even, oh my god, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. no one is untainted. No one is untainted, yeah. yeah. So let's let's yeah. just like But it but it does <laughs> But aside from just sort of the sheer hilarity of having to sort of like be like, Wow, you're all terrible, crazy people. You know, yeah. I think it it does, you know, on a on a more serious level, you know, I think there, there's this sort of the ongoing fandom kind of discourse of the misuse of the notion of toxicity. Yeah. You know, I th- also, the no one should be allowed to use the word abuse anymore. Yeah. It's like there needs to be a moratorium yeah. on the word abuse until everyone learns what abuse right. actually is. Well, <laughs> especially because like there's so many like I like you hear this sometimes like with. You know, I, I mean, and I don't know if this is just sort of, if this is just internet discourse or if it's sort of particular to the dynamics of this show, but um, a lot of things characterized as abusive that are really, it's like, no, that's a, that's an enemies to friends to lovers relationship. Like, that's a, like, yeah. of yeah. course they're trying to kill each other at first, yeah. but that's not an, like, it's not an abusive marriage. It's like they're, they're violent political opponents. Right. And then, and then later when they're together, they're not trying to kill each other. But the fact <laughs> that they tried to kill each other before when they were like mortal nemeses is not, you know, like that. Yeah. Like it's not, yeah. It's like abusive and toxic are words where it's like, it's like, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Right. Right. And like an abusive relationship is not the same thing as one single incident of abuse, you know? Like, right, right, exactly. So. Or or of even, or of continued acts of violence that are not part of, I mean, you know, because in an abusive relationship, the thing is like, you're in a relationship. You you have yeah. contracted with this person and you, you have offered them your trust and made yourself vulnerable to them in a, in a commitment that you are people you can trust. And then that trust is violated and that is what make something an abusive relationship well, which and is also, different and, from well and also it's it's a pattern you know it's not like and it's a pattern it's like exactly yeah it's not like a one thing fight. yeah yeah it's it's a pattern right, right um you know which doesn't mean that like you can't have like one really like like with like with octavia and bellamy you know where it's like their 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 right. relationship is deeply dysfunctional on a number of levels like there is almost there is mm-hmm. there are beautiful things about the intense love that the Blake siblings have siblings have for each other but I would not say that their relationship has ever at any point been healthy <laughs> you know like it's exactly different yeah different oh, levels yeah. of mm-hmm. different like flavors of fucked up and just you know dysfunctional um for different reasons but like the fact that that Octavia beat up Bellamy after Lincoln died does not make their relationship inherently abusive she beat him up once. That was super duper fucked up. Don't get me wrong. You know, like, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a pattern. You know, it was like a one-time thing that was very, very super fucked up and not okay. 
you know, and like, and, and her Mm -hmm. inability or unwillingness to forgive him fully for that for a long time is a whole other, you know, messed up piece of her character, which is obviously like, you know, a deliberate part of the character they were working through, but it's just sort of like, okay, like, you can have an incident that is like super fucked up and wrong in a relationship that is dysfunctional, and that is not the same thing as an abusive relationship. It doesn't make Octavia Bellamy's abuser, you know, it means like, She's his sister with whom he has a really messed up relationship who beat him up once. That was an abusive incident, but it's not quite the same thing. Right. You know, I think what it what this sort of taps into, you know, sort of circle back to the themes in this episode are, you know, I think, you know, I think all of those, you know, ships and all those relationships that we mentioned that have, you know, every single one of which has some very, very dark elements to it, you know, I think for them to make narrative sense I think that you have to accept the central thematic premise that is presented in this show as like endemic to the world of the show which is that people do often horrible things to each other sometimes on purpose sometimes not and that everybody that people have reasons for the choices that they make and that people forgive each other for the things that they have done and move past them and then they are well and truly in the past yeah. you know and mm-hmm. and that all of these relationships have a moment or multiple moments where somebody has done something that if you don't like that character you're like well that's unforgivable mm-hmm. you know there are people who think that it is unforgivable that well, like the one that crops up all the time in the in the cabbie fandom is you know Abby slapping Raven, which right. which I have which I have problems with in terms of the writing because physical violence is something that we see pretty consistently Abby fleeing from mm-hmm. instead of leaning into, mm-hmm. and so the idea that even at her most extreme moment of distress that that would be her response feels feels like inconsistent characterization. But apart from that, you know, it is. Raven understands and forgives it. No part of Raven's ongoing relationship with Abby suggests that she holds on to resentment for that act. You know, and, you know, like you said, like it isn't a cycle. It isn't, you know, it is, it's one bad moment in a history of these two women having this extremely deep and close and intimate familial relationship with each other. So Mm -hmm. I, the way the narrative presents it, the idea that this is an unforgivable act for which Abby should be demonized forever is not included in the narrative. The mm-hmm. narrative makes it clear, like, Raven understands this, she forgives it, she moves past it, that's what they do. You yeah. know, the same way that, like, the all of the things that these characters have done to each other, you know, Clark and Lexa, it's the same thing. Cl- you know, Clark leaving Bellamy, it's the same thing. Yeah, well, and I, and I do think with, like, with, with Abby slapping Raven, it's a little bit like, Octavia beating up Bellamy and then even the massacre you right. know, the, the massacre in season three where those are moments where I sort of feel like part of the issue is that it was a writing choice that did not that that had sort of implications beyond what it was meant to convey in the moment that the writers didn't intend and so part of the reason why it just disappears yeah. in the way that it does is because like basically like they sort of like messed up slightly and are trying to like sort of move past it you know so so like, yeah the Octavia like thing, the like, steps like, leading up go ahead i was just gonna say like the octavia thing i'm just sort of like well that was I, that was mm-hmm. a that was a poor choice in writing and it's right. clear that they right. did not you know that they had no intention of it sort of the repercussions of it being what they were so they're like you know so they're kind of moving past it. i'm like okay fine whatever <laughs> you know that was right, right. i'm happy to let it go 
Yeah, but like some of those, it's like the steps leading up to that moment where we watch a character get to this place and then the steps leading away from that moment of everybody reckoning with that fallout being insufficiently fleshed out yeah. means that then you sometimes have these moments where you're like, this thing came out of nowhere. In contrast to, I think, a, an example of, of physical violence between people with a close relationship that is impeccably laid out, I think, is Kane having Abby whipped. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. where where every every we watch him lead up to making that decision we see we see the you know breadcrumbs being laid we see him having this conversation about it with burn we see him wrestling with it we see him do the thing and then immediately like the the big flip the big shock in that episode is not that he you know enacted this incredibly physically violent thing on this person that he's you know known his entire life it is the way that we see instantly and and forevermore that it realizing he is a person who did that thing transforms him as right. a person. You well, know, I that mean, he like, immediately I think, like I think the 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 parallel then to like bring it back to the episode we're actually ostensibly talking about is that <laughs> Bellamy torturing Lincoln is clearly meant to be that kind of like transformative moment. Like the story isn't exactly it's not yeah. like an incidental thing in the story. It's not just a sort of like the the character is so emotional and then this thing happens. You know, the story is about mm-hmm. this is like a watershed moment you know like everything about Mm -hmm. Kane and and kind of like rule rule follower Kane law follower lawful Kane Mm -hmm. you know from season one into season two led him to that moment of doing that thing and that is the moment when he kind of has this revelation about Mm -hmm. what following his patterns have made him into you know and it's the same kind of Mm -hmm. thing with Bellamy and Lincoln where like he was sort of just just following the same sorts of decision-making processes that he had from the beginning and they led mm-hmm. him to this moment, you know, of, of torturing a person that forces him to sort of, like, take a step back and confront himself, you know, and, and like, mm-hmm. sort of be like, oh, my God, how did I become this person who did this thing, you know? So I think, yeah. like, like, those are both incidents, those are both cases where the kind of, like, act of violence is... A, a step like the middle step in a story that's about a person sort of doing something terrible and then having to figure out how to reconcile with themselves and move forward from it yeah and I think I think that's why like for me it's you know like Kane and Bellamy's arcs are you know this a, apart from the sort of which we've talked about and don't need to go back into but some of the sort of Bellamy challenges in season three but it's sort of apart from that you know like like in season one and in season two in particular you know the Cain and Bellamy's arcs are impeccably laid out. Mm-hmm. And all those moments where they do those things are built up to, and then the fallout of them is explored. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so here I think what we see for Bellamy, which I which I love and which I was watching it, and maybe I'm, you felt the same way, you know, when he talks about his mom. Yeah. Um, I had such Bellamy and the Rover flashbacks oh, God. you know like yes yeah like like the that when he is at his lowest and worst moment of of failure you know here because he's facing the violent things that he has done and in the rover because he's facing the things that he feels like he was supposed to do and couldn't that the place that he goes you know his his sort of deepest wound is my mother would not recognize me you know that i yeah, i'm not the yeah. man my mother wanted me to be 
you know, he says like, she raised me to be good. Like she wanted me to be better than this, you know? And, and there's sort of this element of him wanting to be good, to set a good example for Octavia, but there's also this deep child that was basically handed off, you know, like you're in charge of everything now, mm-hmm. five-year-old, you know? Yeah. And, and so, and the, and the depth to which he's absorbed that, you know, the depth mm-hmm. to which he has made that the measure of his sense of self and the way we watch that come back to him in his darkest moments of like, I'm worthless. I don't deserve to exist. I, I ruin everything I touch. You know, it was just a, like rewatching that, you know, that scene and, and, and I had forgotten because I haven't rewatched this in a while. I'd forgotten how much of it is about Aurora. You know, that that's the thing that kind of kickstarts that, descent into the depths and you know and so of course after the you know after sort of hitting that same kind of emotional excruciatingness you know is so beautifully in season four it's like oh god this is hard to watch it makes you like this is what he does you know this is where he goes like in his mm-hmm. worst moments when he mm-hmm. hates himself the most a big part of the reason why is because he has this picture in his head of the son that Aurora Blake wanted, you know, of the man he was supposed mm-hmm. to be. And he's measuring mm-hmm. himself against that impossible, unrealistic standard. And, and even though like, even though he's doing what his, like in, in his own super fucked up, misguided, maybe way, you know, what his mom told him to do was protect Octavia and that's what he's doing, you know? So it's like, he is, he is trying, he's trying, like, he's like Clark, he's trying so hard, you know, to be that person, but all he can see is the ways in which he's failing and not the ways in which that's the thing that makes him good. The thing that makes him do all the things that make him extraordinary come from that same you know it's sort of the flip side of that same that same thing so it's just really i just yeah. found it extra painful sort of in the wake of that other brilliant bob morley emotional complete unraveling about you know failing to be the son that he thinks his mother wanted failing to mm-hmm. you know live up to that standard i'm just like oh god you're killing me <laughs> So, yeah, so I guess we can talk about um, the Bellamy part of the hallucinations. Um, I mean, it is just, like, heartbreaking how, you know, like, the first thing he does when he's hallucinating is conjure up this Jaha, you know, this, like, vengeance demon Jaha who has come to tell him how horrible he is, you know, and how he deserves to suffer like Bellamy in the mud just like begging him to kill him like he deserves that he deserves oh, death God. and then you know and like I think you point out we got like another little sort of thesis statement in the show there too you know and when Bellamy says I can't fight anymore and Jaha says life is a fight life is a fight yeah which sounded to me very like I when I was watching it this time I was like that sounds like Pike like that sounds like you know the pipe yeah. who teaches Earth skills in the flashback in season three. Yeah, because it, it doesn't sound like Jaha. It does not. No, that's a moment where you know the Jaha hallucination, like we mentioned a little bit before, is is much more an amalgam of Bellamy's perception of Jaha or of leaders, mm-hmm. I guess, and of Bellamy's own kind of internal morality and belief system. And so the idea that life is a fight real jaha especially not the jaha that we see in this episode who's like mr pragmatic yeah. that's not really authentic to his 
worldview. Right, no. But it is definitely, I think you're totally right that it absolutely resonates as Pike and is the kind of thing where it's like, if this is a show telling us, that's Bellamy talking to Bellamy. That's yeah. A, that's a belief that Bellamy holds. Yeah. Then it absolutely makes sense why he would latch on so deeply to somebody like Pike who completely is like emblematic of that mindset yeah like of course of course Bellamy would feel like oh you are kin to me we have this same formative right belief. it's like in a really fucked up way you know that really 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 super fucked up thing where like you have a drive to make your worst fears real like things appeal to you that that reflect your deepest convictions and belief in beliefs including the really really terrible ones and given how the Bellamy in this episode, the sort of like fight that he's going through, the belief that that like to exist is to suffer, you know, that that you just have to like keep fighting, keep fighting, that peace is like a reward that you have to earn, you know, to have a guy like Pike come along in his darkest moment and say to him, all you can do now is keep fighting, you know, like all you can do is just like go deeper into the darkness and keep fighting. Like that really does, like you can see how that just sort of like, in his darkest moment, that is what feels the most true to Bellamy, you know? Yes, exactly. So, like, Pike is just, like, this perfect, horrible alchemy, you know, of, like, Bellamy in this darkest moment at that table, you know, drinking after the Mount, Mount Weather bombing, and Pike coming along and saying to him the things that his brain is saying that he normally has to work really hard to fight off. You know, and here's this person saying, like, don't fight it, go with it, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that horrible thing that your gut is telling you is true. Yeah, which is, like, there's a certain kind of, like, sick relief in just giving in exactly. to believing those yeah. things. Because not believing them when you're in that dark place is so hard, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so, like, that, it kind of, like, puts a different shade on that on season three, you know? Like, kind of, like, it does sort of, like, show the continuity that I think the writers were sort of basing Bellamy's season three decision on the breadcrumb trail was too sparse from this moment mm -hmm. to the massacre in season three for it to really work and it was such an extreme action you know I think it was like there's a bunch of reasons that didn't really it didn't really play out on screen the way that it needed to yeah but, but you can but the see, bones of it are there yeah you can see yeah. you can see the sort of trail you can see the DNA of that choice in Bellamy's character you know you can see where it came from in sort of this moment you know, you also see in that moment, like, for Bellamy, I think there's no possibility, there's no way out. Like, the possibility, he keeps saying, like, we've talked about, like, there, there is no possibility of forgiveness for him. Like, he believes, you know, the only alternative to death is, you know, like, Joby Jaha saying to him, like, no, you have to keep suffering. You're like, you have to stay alive and keep suffering to pay for this crime. He's not really capable of perceiving any means of, like, atonement or reparation or any kind of, like, you know, way of, of defining himself that's different. So on Bellamy's side, I think, like, that's why what Clark says to him is so important, you know, not just that she forgives him, like, and he desperately needs someone to tell him that he forgives him, you know, but also that, that, that he's needed, you know, like, Clark is able to say to him, like, yeah, you've done bad things, you know, like, you're an ass half the time, but also... You know, like, the choices that you made have kept people alive. The choices that you made have produced good in this world for other people. And what you need to do is to go back and keep doing that good stuff that only you can do. You know, and, like, keep go back and keep these kids alive. I think she kind of gives him, 
an alternate perspective that like makes it possible for him to earn some kind of redemption for himself because she kind of gives him a new path. Like these are sins you maybe can't wash off, but there are things that you can do concretely in this world. Like if you go back and you change the way that you operate, if you keep the good stuff and you lose the bad stuff, that's how you kind of like earn your right to be in this world again and to, and you know, to be the, like, this is how you get back to being the man that your mother raised you to be. Yeah. So she gives him a different way to see himself, you know? And like, you can see throughout the show that like, this is, this is like so incredibly important to Bellamy. And it's the thing that he keeps coming back to like in season three, when he kind of mirrors it back to her. If you need forgiveness, I'll get, or in end of season two, sorry, when he says, if you need forgiveness, I give that, I'll give that to you when she's about to leave. You know, like it's, you can, that sort of tells you how important that moment was to him. You know, like how precious and how important to him the vision of himself that she gave him is like the way that, that if he can see himself through her eyes, you know, this is like the version of yeah. himself that, that he wants to be, that he's, that this sort of like enables him to sort of like keep making good decisions instead of bad decisions. So like for her, you know, on, on Clark's side, I think, you know, like we talked about, gives her this opportunity to offer forgiveness, sort of gives her this moment where she can, where she can allow herself to be a forgiving person. She can allow herself yeah. to give yeah. forgiveness that isn't deserved. And I think also, like, you know, you can kind of hear in that conversation, and it's not just that, you know, like, in sort of talking him through convincing him, like, no, you have to go back, you have to keep working, you know, like, I think her giving him that speech, you know, is is sort of affirms for her what's important to her, you know, like, it's reminding herself of why she tries so hard, which is one, one of those reasons why I feel like you can sort of see, you know, in the future, like, for Clark, like, Bellamy is one of the few people where she can sort of like let her guard down a little bit and show her doubt because they can kind of reinforce each other. But then also, you know, when she says you have to go back, you have to face it. And he says like, you faced your mother. Like, you know, she sort of through him, she has to sort of like confront her own, you know, like sort of issues. She has to sort of recontextualize like, you're right. I didn't confront her. I didn't do the thing that I'm telling you to do. Okay. All right. We're going to go back and we're going to do this together. Yeah. Like this sort of implicit, like, all right, we'll be each other's accountability partners. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, this really is really lovely where it's like I can force myself to be strong enough to do this seemingly impossible thing because you also have your own seemingly impossible thing to do and we're going to do our seemingly impossible things together and then maybe it'll be a little bit easier. Yeah. This sort of little... <laughs> quip at the beginning where he's like why are you asking me to go with you and she's like because I don't really feel like being around anyone I actually like you know there's something and this is so human and relatable you know I feel like this myself a lot in some situations where like there are things that it is easier to say or to sort of reveal to a comparative stranger or somebody whose opinion you don't really care about that much and you know or, or you don't feel like you need to impress or cater to or whatever and so I think the fact that at the beginning of this episode they're still kind of tentative uneasy allies and not really friends at all is what allows them to be that raw and messy with each other that leads then to the kind of intimacy that develops a real genuine friendship and partnership after that yeah you know but it it's only possible because they don't feel that way when they get there yeah it builds yeah. over the course of this episode but they're not friends at the beginning and they definitely are by the end of it you know like yeah. it's really transformative yeah. but it but it's it's such a relatable thing to feel like 
that you're holding all these things in. You know, like there's all this stuff that Clark can't say to her mom. There's all this stuff that Bellamy can't say to Octavia and that they feel like they can't reveal any weakness in front of the rest of the delinquents. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's like the key thing for both of them and it starts here, but it plays through where like they are both so guarded. Yeah. You know, it's hard for them to be vulnerable. Clark especially is really just like, because she feels like she has to have it all together, you know, like all the time. She has to keep it together. If she doesn't, everything will fall apart. Like they, you know, so the fact that like they have this moment of shared vulnerability and each mm-hmm. of them sort of receives like support and affirmation in return is like so powerful because I think they're both so afraid of vulnerability, you know, like that vulnerability is going to end in disaster. And so like they become, this kind of makes it what, that, what makes each other like safe. Like, this is the person it's safe to let your guard down around, you know? And, like, and that's just, like, so huge and important. Like you said, like, that wouldn't happen, you know, if they didn't go in kind of being, like, not antagonistic, but just kind of, like, not not friends. Like you said, like, they went in being people mm-hmm. where it's, like, there's no, there's nothing to destroy if things go wrong here. There's no, like, friendship that's going to, that they're going to be really upset to lose. You know what I mean? So it's, like, exactly. so they yeah, can yeah, kind yeah. of, like, have this messiness, and if it goes wrong, then whatever, but it goes really, you know, it goes right, and it's sort of, just, it's like this revelation. That's a very emotionally honest and and relatable and believable kind of a journey that they go on. The developing of this level of intimacy it's like, this is kind of how internet friendships start, yeah, right? Like, yeah. you don't know each other, you're total strangers. Real intimacy can often be developed by relationships that start out by being like, I don't really have anything to lose by being, like, totally fucking honest with you. Yeah. So I'm going to just, like, lay it all out yep. there. And then that laying it all out there creates a framework to build a relationship on top of it that's based in, like, pure, blunt fucking honesty. Yeah. You know, I think that's the thing that really makes their relationship work is that because it started from this place of, like, I don't really feel like I have to impress you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I don't like you that much, so I'm not going to try to, like, make you think I'm cool. Right. And Bellamy's like, I'm peacing out after this trip, so, like, whatever you exactly, think of me after yeah. this, whatever. This is goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't really owe you anything. I don't need to, like, impress you at all. This is, feels absolutely emotionally true to me, that mm-hmm. the intimacy that they develop over the course of this episode and afterwards comes about because, like, the fundamental sort of foundational premise of that relationship that they have developed is that they're always honest with each other. Yes. You know, like, they're always the person that you can say the thing to that you can't say to anybody else for a whole host of reasons, mm-hmm. you know, that, like, you're my one person that I can tell everything to because I know you won't judge me because you're doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. even if it's stuff where it's like, I'm afraid that saying this thing out loud makes me a horrible person. Yeah. Or like, I've been holding on to this thing and I can't say it to anybody else, but I can say it to you because I know that you will just sort of like hear it and take it in and not judge and condemn me. Exactly. And I think like there's a, there's a sort of like deep intimacy and emotional safety in their relationship that like really like, like that's the thing that I really ship that's what gets me you know like that's what I really really love about them you know so like I said so as long as that's there I'm like you know I'm I'm happy and I think it's really like you said it's like really organic the way that that just kind of blossoms out of being raw and open and taking a risk and and discovering this sort of like core compatibility that like isn't on the surface you know it's like not obvious but really just a sort of like deep deeply in who they are 
they are who each other need to sort of like be their best selves. And I think this is what makes the fight in Hakodama in 305 so devastating. It's like, because that's like the one oh, time, God, yeah. you know, like Clark goes in expecting that. She's like, you know, like Bellamy's my partner. Like this is, you know, like he always understands. Then to have that just like, have them be so far apart and have it go so spectacularly wrong is just like so painful and shocking. You know, you can tell to both of them because the like, the baseline of their relationship is, like you said, like, you are the person I can say my every deepest, darkest thought to, who will never hold it against me, who will always forgive me, who will always remind me of the person that I want to be and can be. You know, like, this is the beginning of the sort of dynamic of the two of them where, like you said, they each for the other person make the hard things easier. Exactly, yeah. So the moments when that doesn't click, you know, with Hakodama, or like, or when, when, you know, in, in season four, when, um, Clark pulls the gun on Bellamy, like, it's so traumatic, because it's not just that they're, like, at odds, it's not just that they don't agree, it's that, that sort of, like, fundamental, like, no, you're supposed to understand why I'm doing this, how can you not, is, like, so just, like, you know, it's like the the bottom dropping out. Like, what do you do if the person who always understands doesn't understand? Yeah, and, and what are the ongoing sort of ripple effects of that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The original script for Day Trip is over-the-top extra on the Blark stuff. Oh, yeah, let's talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's the, the uh, scene directions for the gun scene are all very, you know, like, Bellamy is definitely, like, in the script supposed to be sort of like, whoa. Um, I'm close to a pretty girl, which by the way, I was going to say before, like the other thing I love about that scene is that is like peak massive giant goober Bellamy trying to pretend that he's like a cool (laughs) slick guy. And it's just like, no, what are you doing? He's all like smirky, like, oh, let me show you how it's done. And it's like, you nerd, you're a nerd. Stop it. (laughs) Oh my God. I want to pause and dig into this for a second because I found that so hilarious. There's three things about this scene that I found wildly delightful. One was the moment where he's like, look at me. And then the gun doesn't fire. And she's like, I'm waiting. And he's like, God damn it. And he's like, does it again? And he's like, my bullets are bad. You try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, blame the bullets. You're like, all right, sure, buddy. So I love that. And then I loved the hilariously peak Clark and Bellamy contrast moment where she's like, let's develop weapons management infrastructure and creative system by which the guns are distributed. And he's like, or we could just shoot things because it's really fun. <laughs> where you're just like, oh my God, like Bellamy just wants to shoot stuff. And she's like, we need systems. We yeah. do not have it. Yeah. Like, I can't have fun until I organize yeah. the system. She's like, and how are, oh what God. is going to be our checkout system for guns and ammo? And how do we keep make sure exactly. that no like, yes. where are we going to keep them on lockdown and who is who is going to be the like weapons master yeah. who checks She's vice in president of firearms management yeah <laughs> exactly and bellamy's like you gotta learn how to shoot things clark and also it's super yeah fun. it's like this is like this is an important skill and also like can you just like be a little bit less clark for like one second so though so i love those things but then the act the moment that i love the most that i had totally forgotten about until i rewatched this was the part where like she fires a gun and realizes it's awesome and then is instantly like, I am the worst person. There's so much humor and lightness and sort of like, like a whole different kind of side of them in that, in that scene where they're sort of able to kind of be a little playful with each other, which is just so nice. You know, they're both so tightly wound. I think on some level, just purely getting to see them both smile. Yeah. You're like, yeah. 
this is really actually nice. Can we just like hang out in here for a little while longer? Yeah, right. Can we just see them smile at each other like once or twice more just because it's been so long? I don't even remember what they look like when yeah. they smile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like this and then like the next episode, the Unity Day flirting, which is of course another like, you know, well-known thing in the Black Panther, but just like mm. these little moments where they can kind of just like let their guard down and joke around are always just so precious. The other big like script thing is um, in the original script, at some stage, and you know, who knows when it got cut uh, or if it was even filmed, but in the original script, at some point during the tree scene, Bellamy asked her to run away with him. And I think it's like after the forgiveness thing is somewhere in there. He's like, why don't he's just like, why don't we just run away together and leave that behind? Something, something. Which, you know, is one of those things where it's like, you know, it's like super extra. I mean, you know, sort of like right, right. all the sort of like plausible deniability, like the deniability of the writers being like, no, no, we never thought about it. We never thought about it. It's like, oh, well, okay. So you wrote a script that made it at least fairly far into the process where Bellamy literally, literally was like, hey, Clark, let's run away together. So on the level of, like, it's nice to know that this was a feeling that some version of Bellamy plausibly had at that stage in the show. Right. I like it. Other than that, I am actually so happy they cut it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Having read it, it's, like, weird. Also, like, it, that would completely undo basically all of the stuff we just talked about. You know, like... Uh, the, the way that oh, that yeah. scene yeah, yeah, yeah. is, like, about their sort of development, the way that they sort of, like, forge this bond based on, like, vulnerability and a sort of, like, shared commitment to the delinquents, you know, and taking care of them. It really undercuts Bellamy's character a lot, you know, because I think it's, like, it's so oh, yeah. important to Bellamy that the thing that he sort of, like, learns from after this episode, from this experience and from his sort of introspection about what he had done before is that the way that he atones for that, the way that he, you know, can be a good person is to, like, commit himself to, you know, protecting these people and taking care of them the best that he can, you know, and sort of expanding that circle of protectiveness from Octavia to a larger circle. And so I'm really, really glad that that is not canon. Yeah. A thousand times better that it's not in there at all, in my opinion. I'm with you. I'm so happy that they cut it. Him leaving Octavia is a desperation move. You know, it's a thing that he does to punish himself because he thinks that he's unforgivable. And it feels less in character in the context of this conversation for him to be like, hey, you know, like we could go back and things might be okay or we could just run away, Clark. Like that does not feel in character for Bellamy. Like in that context, like I don't feel yeah. like with going back and sort of like finding his way back to Octavia being sort of plausible again, I don't see him being like, or I could just run away with Clark. If it had come up way earlier when like when she first figures out like, oh my God, this is what, like, like when they're in the bunker. Yeah, like, yeah, you're yeah. Gonna bolt. Right. In that context, if he had said, yes, I am, and you should come with me, because fuck these other guys, let's just go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a way you could frame it where I would buy it if it come up right away. Yeah, You know, yeah, like, yeah, if yeah. she said, you're gonna run, and he said, yeah, and you should too. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Wouldn't she just like to, like, forget all this stuff and, like, start over again? Like, that makes sense. I, of course, I, I absorb all this Balearic stuff through osmosis. <laughs> so I, too, have seen the alternate version of the scene that got cut. And with the placement of that moment being in that tree scene, like, I, it just, to me, it just feels like everything from the hallucinations onward needs to be, which it is in the version that made it to screen, needs to be about moving them towards facing stuff. Yes, exactly. 
So everything is about Clark being pushed to face both her mother and the kind of continued shouldering of this leadership burden that she has taken on that, you know, that we see from the way that she responds when Jake is there, that like some part of her wants to just kind of like curl up in somebody's arms and have somebody else take care of things for her. And deep down she knows that she can't, you know, so those are the things that she has to march back in and, you know, and face. And for Bellamy, you know, it's about facing Octavia, about learning to live with the fact that like, even if Octavia is angry at him, that he is still her brother, that he can't, you know, like he has to keep kind of showing up. That he has a worth as a person beyond Octavia. You know, that even if he has wronged Octavia, yes. he still has worth to the rest of the delinquents. You know, he still has value. He can still, you know, make life better for people other than Octavia. Yeah, like I think it, the, the, the realization that he has a role to play and that he's needed. You know, yeah. I mean, like Bellamy's love language is totally like words of affirmation you know like oh, Bellamy yeah. needs <laughs> to feel needed he needs to be told that he's doing a good job he needs to he- like he's just he's so like I think starving for any kind of validation that anything that he's doing is right yeah yeah which makes you feel like so sad for little boy Bellamy who probably didn't hear that from his mom, you know, like he was just hearing about like, yeah. oh yeah, what we have to do, here's what we have to do, here's the thing that we have to like worry about, mm-hmm. here's the, you know, and never heard like, thank you Bellamy, you're doing such a good job, you know, I appreciate you and rely upon you so much and whatever, like, yeah. And certainly none of that from Octavia, yeah. who is too immature to fully recognize the magnitude of the sacrifices that he has been and is continuing to make for Mm -hmm. her. Yeah. You know, no one has ever seen or acknowledged who he is, what he brings to the table, how competent he is. Watching him sort of evolve into understanding and accepting that being Octavia's brother is not the only thing that defines who he is, I think is a huge core part of his arc that makes me really interested to sort of see how the time jump of six years apart plays out for him yeah you know like that's a pretty definitive severing of that umbilical cord yeah 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 so who is he going to be when he comes back yeah you know and who's she going to be without having him to protect her and also sort of to push back against but i do feel like you know i think for bellamy oh really for both of them i think you know i think the trajectory of this scene you know it's like like a little mini version of the sort of joseph campbell hero's journey right it's like you go away so you can come back right exactly you, exactly you go away to go through a thing in order that then you return able to face the things that are there yeah, you know? yeah, and yeah. so they they leave camp as people who can barely tolerate each other but there's a thing that has to get done you know she knows where the bunker is. She needs a second in command person to, you know, go along with her. It's like, yeah, okay, you, sure, fine. Right. You know. Like she's he's reliable. She knows like he's the he's going to be a helpful person to go with her, but they're not like friendly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then they return back as like an established unit who has shared this experience that is unique to the two of them that has sort of, you know, gone through this kind of like soul bearing, but really sort of cemented this partnership, you know, down to the the little like head knob where they like drop their guns in unison at the same time. Yep. <laughs> they are nothing if not drama queens. <laughs> they are so drama queens. Yeah. The choreography in that scene was on point. Yeah. I think the idea that at that stage in their conversation 
you know, that he would still be thinking about running away and him trying to pull her away from facing her demons instead of her helping him realize he has to confront his demons. And through that, realizing that she has to confront hers. That she know? has to, too. Yeah. 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 Like, I... I think it it undercuts so much of the the really lovely kind of clean and consistent build that that exists in this yeah. episode. It just it just rings as a false note. Yeah, it's like a step back before they step forward. Exactly. You know, whereas yeah. now it's a it's a really clean unbroken arc where from the minute the hallucination shows up, you know, and including Dax, you yeah. know, including the yeah. sort of the real world intruding into this sort of hallucination world that they're experiencing. Everything is pushing them back towards, like, you know, you have to face and confront your reality, you know. And, and the, the fight with Dax, I think, is, a, is a, a sort of literal manifestation of that, you know, of the, the choice that Bellamy made, getting in bed with Shumway, you know, like signing up to do this thing, that decision having ongoing ramifications that he needs to address before he does anything else, you know. And some of that is the kind of emotional processing of that and some of that is also having to kill one of their people in order to sort of put to rest the ongoing fallout of this choice that he made it's both i think a necessary step in this sort of the slay your demons yeah, you know, sort yeah, of yeah. the bellamy mantra yeah. you know, like facing the things that are hard to face yet also it is completely plausible that having to do that you know having to kill a person in cold blood is like the last straw that sends him into this you know, I'm a monster who destroys everything that I touch because he knows, you know, he wouldn't have had to kill Dax if he hadn't done the thing where he shot, you know, like yeah. that moment having to stab someone in the neck with a bullet. It's like the last chicken coming home to roost from that. Yes, initial... it's the culmination of a lifetime of choices that he's reproaching himself for and he's just shattered by it. Yeah. But in a way where in that sort of naked vulnerability, um, there's still a forward momentum to that because now it's like now at least you're naming the thing right you know, now yeah. you're saying out loud my deepest darkest fear is that i am a monster yes yes he's saying it out loud so that it can be confronted you said it. so that it can be argued yes. against like he said it so clark can say no you're not you know like you do yes, bad things exactly. and you do good things and i think also like that fight is itself the beginning of that reversal because you know, like, Bellamy and his hallucinations had just been begging Jaha to kill him. And then we see, like, this is Bellamy literally fighting for his life. You know, like, this is Bellamy, like, yep. not consciously, yep. but just sort of, like, instinctively fighting to stay alive. You know, that, that like, spark is still in him. You know, he's, like, he's he's begun to do the thing that is opposite of what he thought he wanted to do, which is kind of the beginning of yeah. this, like, so, you know, that, like, darkest point, you know, and this is the beginning of the reversal of that sort of, like, dark arc. So, yeah, and then, and like you said, it's just, like, so clean, so perfect, you know, like, whoever finally made that decision that that little bit about running away had to be cut, like, their instincts were bang on, you know, because, like, yeah, yeah, having that little undertow in there would have totally just like messed up that dynamic. And also, it would really undercut what Clark says to Jaha later. You know, mm -hmm. to get him like to say like like large part it's because of Bellamy. If Bellamy had tried to like even for a moment say like, "Hey, why don't we run away?" It would make what Clark says to Jaha about the fact that Bellamy is vital to this community because he is so dedicated to their to them and their survival. It would make it like ring a little bit false. It would make it sound like that's yeah. Clark. That's Clark like trying to 
convince Jaha rather than Clark just telling Jaha what she genuinely deeply believes is true about Bellamy, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, and again, like the important thing for Bellamy is that she's sort of through that, she's giving him a different perspective on himself, like a different way to understand himself. And also like, again, like to go back to Clark, like to have the episode end with Clark advocating for the forgiveness of someone, I think is like so deeply important and healing to Clark, you know, like she can begin this sort of emotional healing by standing up and saying like Bellamy is a person who should be forgiven you know like that's like the first step on her journey to being able to forgive her mother yeah and all of that like the the symmetry of that and the fact that she's saying that to Jaha you know like like the symmetry is just so perfect and so satisfying I wouldn't want that little sort of like weird undertow of hang on a second why don't we run away okay never mind no we're gonna do this thing instead you yeah know, to sort of like muddy that up so I'm I'm glad that isn't in there you know like I think it was definitely the right choice for both characters and I think for their relationship that they, you know, went in the direction that they did. Absolutely, and I am, yeah. I am totally pleased with what wound up in the screen and I would not change it one iota. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is a, it's a really, really, really great episode. It is, yeah. I mean, it's so, like, it's so, it's so tightly structured in the way all the plots weave together, fits in so nicely the little bits of arc that we get and the little bits of what's going on in the ground that we get. The Joby Nut sort of running thread through all of the ground storylines impacts all of them differently. Yeah. You know? But it's all part of one kind of thing. Like, they're looking for food. They have no food. They happen upon these nuts. They don't know anything. Yeah. And so, you know, in one phase of the storyline, it allows Octavia a method by which to sneak Lincoln out of camp and save, and thus, you know, save Lincoln's life. And then in another version of the storyline, there's a sort of, like, pure comedic silliness, you know, and then we also get, like we talked about before, the kind of, like, touching on, like, all the darkness of sort of, like, Jasper's fears. And then all the way over somewhere completely else, you know, we get these very deeply traumatic hallucinations for Clark and Bellamy that happen largely, you know, because, like, they're alone. They don't have a, a Raven and Octavia to sort of sit him down and be like, okay, you're high, so, like, sit here and, like, hold this stick until you cool off. You know, like, they're alone except for each other, you know? And so, like, the sort of weaving through that structure, I think, is so deft and tidy. The sort of use of real Jaha versus hallucination Jaha to kind of tie the two storylines together. Like, the structure is so clean. But I also just really love... What I really like about the show is where you can dig really, really, really deeply into a theme or an idea in a way that never feels clunky or ham-handed. Like, it never Mm -hmm. feels like this episode is about, capital F, forgiveness, the abstract concept. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It deeply and genuinely and authentically is. Yeah. In every single, you know, element and piece of the storyline. But in a way that, you know, flows out of the structure of the story that's Yeah, exactly. So it, yeah, it's just, this is the... There's no, like, anvil moment of, like, let me deliver to you the moral of this episode. You know, there's, like, none of that. It's it, just sort right, of, like... exactly. Sort of beautifully yeah. and organically sort of emerges through this, the various stories that the characters are enacting. You yeah. know, and I, and I do love, like, I, I, I do love the little Blake sibling moment at the end, you know, where, like... Octavia's still mad at Bellamy and Bellamy is sort of like, you know, the sort of detente moment where like he's able to kind of say like, 
I'm sticking around, you know, and still like you can be mad at me and I'm still going to love you. Exactly. Yes. Because like it can be so hard if somebody like if you if you have conflict with somebody that you love or you're in a fight or whatever, it feels impossible to be kind, you know, and and that yeah. just kind of perpetuates the conflict. It perpetuates being at odds. And so for Bellamy, you know, it's so huge for for that episode to end with Bellamy saying, you know, going up to her and giving her a blanket and being like, you don't have to like this, but I'm going to be here here you know I'm gonna make sure you're not cold yeah you know like and he doesn't expect anything in return he doesn't you know expect her to forgive him he's just like he's just gonna do it because he wants to you know and I think like that's that's such a huge step for Bellamy and it's like it was it's a step for Octavia to say you know thank you so Octavia obviously is still not she's not completed her journey Right. <laughs> you know, in terms of being able to forgive or sort of cope with either her own sort of darkness or other people's. So, you know, we'll see if that that is something that she deals with in season five. But I mean, even then, like, that feels, with, with a few sort of momentary exceptions, like, it does feel like the sort of course of Octavia's arc makes sense. You know, like, again, you can see the breadcrumbs of the Octavia who is, like, so locked in to her pain and what she, what it makes her think is right and wrong in season three and four in this early Octavia and her kind of like mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. her like her her sort of struggle to let things go. <sighs> Such a good episode. Such a good episode. Oh man, I love it so much. Like they're all good from here on out though, because the Unity Days is a great episode for Arc. The next mm. one up, which will be in two weeks, one and nine Unity Day. Yeah. Great that is one episode of my favorites. on the ground and on the arc. Like I think one of the best of the of this season, if and pop, you know, maybe one of the best of the series. And like I think basically every episode from here on out, you know, like they hit the middle of season one and it was just this like beautiful run of like excellent. Yeah, episodes. in in a in a very real way, everything from the cooling onward is equally my favorite. Yes, me too. Season. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because the whole arc of you know the the two storylines the ways that they kind of converge with each other the ways that you know like what's happening separately like they're both they're both so fleshed out the stakes are so high it's such a fucking roller coaster yeah yeah and and both of them you know what they're each sort of driving towards and then the stakes just ramp up and ramp up and ramp up and yes unity day is one of my absolute favorites it's it's along with the with the calling one of the ones when i watched it where you know, the big high stakes thing that happens was genuinely out of nowhere shocking. Yes. Yes. So I love it when, when this show does that. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm excited to, oh, I'm excited to yell about Diana Sydney. Yes. Oh man. It's going to be such good times. Oh, I love that bitch. Such good times. <laughs> All right. Well, so that's for next time. Uh, 109 Unity Day. And then I think in between this podcast going up in that one, we will have a special edition of Metastation coming up. We have some interviews with the um, organizers of the Unity Days convention, which is January 19th through the 21st of 2018 in Vancouver. We will be going to that one. You can come see us. Yes, and we will be um, on revisiting our same Meta panel from last year. That's been announced, I think, yes. so we can talk yes, about that. Yes, we can that, talk right? about that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So along with Brittany and Robin from the Epictionados and Sam from Telltale TV, who were on the panel with us last year, we're going to reunite and 
panel up again, and we're very excited about yes. that. So that's happening Super duper excited. And then we'll also have an interview with some of the people who are putting together or working on putting together the Con Gata convention, which will be in June, next June uh, 2018 in L.A., so we'll talk to them about how that's coming along. All sorts of meditation. Lots of good fun times. stuff. Yes. All right. Bye. Bye.